What is up, everybody? Welcome to the show. This episode marks the end of season one. 30 episodes, 30 guests, 30 great conversations. I hope you love it. I hope you took a lot of information from it. I personally did. I also got a lot of inspiration out of it for myself. So happy that we can do this, have these awesome conversations, and hopefully inspire you and give you some new tips and tricks. So we are getting ready for season two. It's gonna be coming at you soon. But for now, this episode is a compilation of some moments that we really love from this year. So thank you so, so much for all your love and support and for listening this year. Please hit me on Instagram or anywhere on the Jamcard app with any sort of feedback or ideas or who you'd want to see in the show or write comments, YouTube, wherever you're listening, because uh, I want to hear and keep this as a conversation. So if you haven't, please subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. And if you would leave a review, that would be really, really helpful. So thank you so much. Much love. Let's go. Go. This is Jimmy Jam. It's really interesting because I feel like so many people, especially in LA, or maybe it's a big city thing, but they, they have the we've made it. Uh, mentality, even if they haven't made it and they're on their way there and they're faking it until they make it. Right, right, right. Do you think that the we made a mentality actually holds you back? We just never felt that. Even even we, I was talking to somebody the other day about, uh, they were like Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Don't you feel you made it? And I'm like, no. I feel like that is, when we get an award like that, I feel like that means we got to prove we really deserve that award. And if anything, it's a platform to try to do more things. Our purpose is to leave music in a better place. That's our overall purpose. We don't know exactly what that means or what that looks like, but we know that that's our purpose. That's our mission statement or whatever you want to call it. How we go about doing it is the interesting thing. And that's why you wake up every day. And I feel like when we wake up every day, it's like a chance to do something, mm -hmm. to, to create a song, to create a memory, to put a smile on somebody's faces. Like that's the way we look at it when we wake up. Yeah. And uh, that's, uh, I don't know. It's such a blessing to be able to do that. We tell people that we've never had an argument and people go, what do you mean you never, how could that happen? You never had an argument. I said, and I always articulate it like this. An argument is something you're trying to win. Mm. So if I win an argument against Terry, that means he loses. And why would I want my partner to lose at anything, particularly something that I'm involved with? But if you change the idea of an argument, something you're trying to win to a disagreement, a disagreement is something you're trying to solve. So if you have two different points of view, but you're trying to get to a conclusion or get to a, you know, to the best way, then to me, it's not about whether it's my way or his way. It's about what's the best way to get there. Um, so I think in that case, I think it's kind of, not, if you agree on what the destination is, you agree with where you're trying to go. Usually the disagreement is how you get there. With, with Janet, what is it like to create such a special bond with an artist? The trust factor is so important. I think the thing that we've, when people think about record production, for instance, I think the thing you think about is, um, you know, equipment choices or, you know, you think about the technical side of things. Mm -hmm. I think what's much, I won't say more important, but goes hand in hand with that is the psychology of it, the psychiatry of it, the therapy of it. Because you're in order to get that best performance out of someone, which is 
to me the you know the mark of any great producer is to draw a great performance out of someone when we started off with janet and i always talk about foundation the foundation with janet and us was she came to minneapolis and for four or five days we didn't even go to the studio you know we rode around the lakes we went to movies we went to the clubs we went we hung out and then she said when are we going to start working and we said oh we're working and we showed her the opening lyrics to control wow as she's writing about this taking control of her life She's actually living a life of self-sufficiency Yeah, where she has to get herself around. She has to drive herself places. She has to get herself out of, you know, nasty came because she was in, we were at the club and these guys were, you know, talking to her very nastily and she didn't like it. And people were saying to us, why don't you go over and help her? And we're like, well, we keep an eye on her, but she'll figure it out. Yeah, we're writing a song right now as we're. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so that that was kind of the thing, and and so it's a relationship that's grown to you know she's the godmother of my oldest son. Amazing. Um, our you know our relationship is is amazing. You're probably the one rare person where both Janet and Michael trusted your opinion. Yes, I think I guess so. Okay, so you make Scream and Runaway in Minneapolis. Janet and Michael are there, um, but their instrument. You just did the tracks. Right? Just did the track With, we, without them there. Yeah, we did. So Jan, we had Janet come up, and then the idea was we went to New York mm-hmm. after because Michael was in New York. Got it. So we flew to New York. Janet came up for the vibe for you to make. She those came tracks. for the vibe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We go to New York. Uh, we go to uh, Hit Factory. Was called Hit Factory. Yep. Um, and we had, I think, at that time, six tracks. I want to say, or seven, six or seven tracks that we had. And Michael just said, "Okay, play me what you got," and we played all the tracks. And then, uh, and he played them loud. <laughs> if the if it was ten, it wasn't eleven. It was like fifteen. Wow. Like it was so loud. I I couldn't figure out how he was hearing stuff. Anyway, when we all the tracks went off, he just kind of it was he was so quiet, and he just kind of said, "Okay, those are really good. Can we just hear um, number two and number five? It's like cool. So the two and five were Runaway and Scream. Scream. Yeah. And anyway, we listened to both of them again a couple times. And he said, okay. He said, I, I think I really like this one here. And it was the, the one that was Scream. And Janet just looked at me and said, and I said, yeah. Told you so. You were right. Told you so. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And then did you immediately that night start cutting vocals? The next, no, the next, uh, the next day we went to his apartment uh, or his condo or whatever it was, in, in, actually in Trump Tower. Uh, and, <laughs> and it, very interesting. Yeah. And so we, uh, we went to his place and, uh, he had the track. He already had kind of the skeleton of what vocally he wanted it to be. Mm. And so, uh, I don't know that you've seen the Janet documentary, but in the Janet documentary, there is some footage of in his apartment, uh, and them working on it together. I mm. think I was actually maybe filming that. Really? I, I might have been filming that at that point in time. Yeah. Um, because I would always get a camera handed to me back in that day, and they would just go, just cap- capture. Because they didn't want to have cameramen and all that kind of stuff. It was still. Ruin the vibe, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. So a lot of that stuff was always kind of self-done. Wow. But yeah, but that was the vibe, and we got, we got, you know, we got it to that point. So then the studio part was, the funny part was, so he had just gotten married to Lisa Marie mm-hmm. at that point. And I remember my wife, uh, who's also named Lisa, is they were having a conversation. And I remember she asked Lisa Marie, what is it that you saw in Michael? And I remember her saying he was the kindest person that she had ever met. Wow. 
And I just, that resonated with me because that's what I thought of Michael in being around him. Yeah. He was so kind. He was so compassionate and so kind. Um, and I, and I got why that would be attractive, particularly to somebody who grew up, you know, with the glare of the spotlight and all of those types of things. Yeah. Why someone that would have that in common and, and find that as a, as a bonding right. thing. The funny part, of course, was when Michael comes in to sing and he's wearing like, you know, jingle jangle stuff and all the <laughs> breaking all the studio rules. Yeah. right? <laughs> and he comes in all kind of mild. And the idea is, in, you know, we're in New York. Janet's going to sing after Michael. Michael's going to lay his part down first. And I swear Michael walks in so meek and so mild. And as soon as the music starts, he turns into the Tasmanian devil. He's screaming and, and twirling and doing. He's just killing it. Sings a whole song from start to finish. Our jaws are just on the floor. Wow. Just like unbelievable. Never seen anything like it in our life. Uh, when he finishes, he just goes, how was that? <laughs> back to back to his real self. Back to his real self. And we were like, uh, yeah, Mike, that, uh, that was good. And he goes, you want me to do it again? Yeah, Mike, yeah, yeah, go ahead and do it again. Like we, we're totally like, right? Janet leans in between us and she just goes, I'll do my vocal in Minneapolis. <laughs> yes. Dude, she's so smart. She does not want to follow. Nobody wants to follow that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so anyway, when we're done, I remember he comes out. He does a couple more takes. He comes out and he goes, okay, Janet, you're going to do your vocal now? And she goes, uh, yeah, Mike, I think I'm going to uh, I'm gonna wait on my vocal. You know. And anyway, so she comes to Minneapolis. She does her vocal in Minneapolis. We send the vocal to Michael. He calls us and he goes, she sounds really good. And we said, yeah, thanks, Michael. And he said, no, she sounds really good. Where'd she record that? And we said, Minneapolis. He said, I'm coming to Minneapolis. So now he comes to Minneapolis because he just wants his vocal to be as good as hers. Oh, my God. We ended up not using, we might have used maybe 10% of what he did in Minneapolis. We had He had nailed it in New York. Totally. He came back and cut the vocal again in he Minneapolis. He came back and cut it again. He wanted. He just wanted to do it. And I remember- And it may have even been placebo to him because yeah, he just used the majority of New York- vocals anyways totally wow we used probably 90 percent. i think there wow. might have been one little piece that we used from the new vocal but no he had already nailed it in new york well, what totally. was the difference between his performance in new york at, at, at his studio that he's used to and being in minneapolis with you guys wow that's a great question i've never thought about that um yeah because the room he was in i remember was our, our what was studio b at our at our building at that point in time um it was very similar, but what was different was the two things. One was the shock of him wasn't as prevalent. Mm. And also he was a little more measured in his performance because I think there were specific things that he was looking for to try to get. Yeah. So it wasn't just kind of the free form, just do your thing. Yeah. It's kind of like specific, can we get this one line? Or can yeah, we, yeah, you know, yeah. He knew what he wanted he to. He knew what he wanted to nail a little yeah. bit better. Yeah. So I think that was that was probably the difference. The other thing I remember was wintertime in Minnesota. And uh, I remember he loved it because he could put a ski mask on and he could go to the Mall of America. He could go anywhere he wanted to go. Wow. And just be normal. Wow. You know, and he used to go, love going to the Mall of America because there was an amusement park there. And of course, it was huge and yeah. all the restaurants and all the stuff that was there. So he, that would be like his hangout. <laughs> with the ski mask on? With the ski mask on. <laughs> because it was normal. It was in Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. When, the, when the weather's cold, people just put ski masks on. So yeah. that's what he would he'd walk around in a ski mask. Yeah. yeah. And then he's like, Can I get a hot dog on yeah. a stick? And right. they're like, Are you Michael Jackson? Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
I'm sitting here with one of the greatest mixing engineers of all time, a dear friend of mine, ladies and gentlemen. His name is Manny Mariquin. Man, with Kendrick, for example, we met and we sat there for three hours just talking about, you know, where our beginnings are, you know, just no music at all. We talked about each other, to each other. You know, we had an amazing conversation. Because, you know, he was coming off of, he went some, something different, not better or worse, or not worse, but not better, but just different. Different. So he uh, wanted to meet me. We sat there, and he, I got to tell you, he's a, he studies every nuance, every movement, every word. And uh, by the end of it, he's like, let's give a song, let's do one song and see what happens. So we did, you know, we worked on one song. And for me, you could tell an artist was, wanting something slightly different right yeah. so that's the psychology so what we do is half of it is mind games the other half is hopefully some talent here and there and some luck a lot of luck yeah but with him it was about <clears throat> it's such a deep album if you yeah. it's a concept album i mean if you guys 10 years from now some people are going to get it they're like oh this is what's happening there's a lot of easter eggs along the way that when people start discovering um, it's gonna it's gonna have new life to new listeners and for sure. Just, but he won't talk about them, you know, which is a shame. I wish he could just go on and I wish people would hear what he would what he's told me about the album and how this song connects to this song and this lyric connects to it's an answer, it's a question answer. To, it's like, I mean, can people please find out? Because yeah, it would blow your mind. So for me, I'm already mixing. Every conversation, I'm already, I'm already like, okay, this needs de- depth, needs ups and downs. We need to really move. And sometimes the, the vocal's really dark, really moody. Other times it's really bright, really punchy. And it's just capturing that emotion of each song. So for me, this album is a book, and each song is a chapter. We finished dinner, and then uh, and then we walked back to my house, and then, and then you left, you gave me a hug. You're like, bye, I got to go finish this. I got to go finish this mix, this Migos and Drake song. And I was like, oh, when does it come out? And you were like, tonight. Tonight, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, what? Tonight? Yeah, yeah. And then I went to bed, and I woke up in the morning, and it was the oh, top banner yeah, of Spotify, yeah. like Migos and Drake. And I was like, how is that possible that we're at dinner at like 7 p.m., and yeah. you needed to finish the mix? And that, So I guess there is some sort of special treatment you get if you're Migos and Drake to where... I'm assuming yeah, yeah, you yeah, yeah. finished it, you delivered it, and probably within minutes it was on Spotify. Yeah, something similar Coast. happened with uh, going back to Kanye with Power. Remember yeah, the song Power. Yeah, of course. I remember being up till seven in the morning, sent them the mix, ten a.m. in New York, uh, and this is pre-streaming. Uh, yeah. Nowadays you can it's easier to ingest, you know, something a digital into file. The yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Back then it wasn't right. Yeah. So. The debut was going to be at noon, New York time. The new Kanye single was a big deal, right? Finished it at 7 a.m., 10 a.m., New York time. He sends, calls me, did a few notes or a few things here and there, sent it to mastering. At noon, it was debuted worldwide. And it was, that was the craziest thing I've ever like seen. Like debuted on the radio? Like on the radio, was, yeah. yeah. Like, like they played it right top of the hour, noon, nine a.m. here. It was incredible. So some people have that, you know. Have that Clive power. back in yeah. the day was a master of that. Like back in the day, you know, you you, you you needed about a month. Like you turned the album in, and then 
a month later it would come out, right? Printing CDs. Yeah, exactly. And somehow Clive would get it done like four days before. I'm like, how do you do that? Clive Davis. Yeah. Yeah. How do you do that? How do you like get the plan to, you know, I don't know, half a million copies and like, a couple of days. How do you get the trucks, to, you know, deliver them to all the record stores? Some people just have it. Drake is one of them. Drake is one of them. John Mayer's song, Gravity, right? Mm. Um, that song, when I, that was the first song I ever, ever worked uh, with. That, that, that's when we met, John and I. And um, I remember mixing it and taking all the effects off, right? And I didn't know why subconsciously i mean gravity is fucking heavy right so i took all the effects off john comes in uh listens to the mix steve jordan's producing he's, he's on the road with clapton he's in the south of france it's like you know <laughs> by the beach and like so we call him we're like we got the mix played it for john listens to it loves it because it's really i mean to me that song was like how would the roots play you know how would if John got together with the roots, right? How yeah. would that sound? Because before that, your body is a wonderland. You know, it's very poppy, very singer-songwriter. Well, this song is like, how do we give him a different type of sound? Because he's searching for that. Yeah. So gravity. So the vocal is dry. I mean, bone dry. And he's like, he's like, what do you have on my vocal? I'm like, I don't know. Let me see. <laughs> and I'm looking at the channel, and I have no effects on it. I go, it's dry. And at this point, John's like, what do you mean dry? Yeah. Like dry. There's nothing. Not, not even a slap or a short three. It's like, no, there's nothing. And that made him really uncomfortable. So the left brain, I mean, the right brain, your creative side is like, oh, it feels great. But then your right side, I mean, left side kicks in. It's like, wait a minute. No, I've never had a dry vocal. And wow. we roll with it. Uh, he plays. He, he called me from the video shoot. And he's like, man. Can we try some reverb on it? I just want to hear what it sound what it sounds like. So I gave him one with an AMS reverb, another one with a four eighty, uh, with a uh, yeah four eighty, and uh, give gave him two options. Right, I like option B. Let's roll with that. And I'm like, all right, cool. So then he's playing the, the album, the finished album for Donnie Einer at the time, and Donnie heard Gravity, and he's like, to his you know credit, he's like, wait a minute, sounds different. So he's, you know, getting the demo or whatever, the rough mix or or the first mix. He plays it on the CD. He's like, that's the song. That's the mix. And he calls me. He's like, Donnie heard it. And we're rolling with the dry vocal. But imagine at this point, he's never, ever heard himself that dry or dry at all. And I'm like, you're such a badass singer that, yeah. yes. But it came from the subconscious of, like, gravity being a heavy theme, you know, and the, yeah. the lyrics. So to answer your question, that was one of those examples of, you know, it kind of influences, you know, again, gravity, it influences me to be, I don't know, take some chances, you know. And thankfully we won on that one. There's been others that I haven't been that successful, but at least you tr that's our job, to give you different emotions, hopefully. And my idol growing up was Al Schmidt, yeah. rest in peace. And I sat next to him. 15 years ago at the Grammys and and he's I'm like man you got 20 Grammys you should rub some of that and I won three that night which wow. was was like was amazing so I, at that point I had four and I'm thinking this guy's got 20 that number was just out of reach I mean yeah. that's like a dream you know so <clears throat> now having 17 it's just like it blows my mind I mean you know look I come from very humble beginnings so um 
this is just amazing. I, I take it all in. Because, you know, listen, there's going to be another chapter where, where I'm not going to be doing this, and I want to yeah. enjoy every fucking second of it. Ladies and gentlemen, Nicole Rowe. <sighs> How did you get the gig with Panic at the Disco? Okay, so my Fender rep. I was working with Miley at the time. Yep. And my Fender rep was, what he told me was he was having lunch with their their team and Brendan, and they said they were going to need someone really quick for, you know, the next leg of their tour. And he just dropped my name in the hat. I was just like, you should meet this girl. And he said he like pulled up my Instagram, um, which immediately changed the way that I <laughs> do things on my social media, but, and showed it to, showed it to them. And he looked at like the three videos that I had on there. Oh, because at the time you weren't posting a lot of videos no. of you playing. No, nothing. You didn't have a plat. You didn't have a bunch of followers then. No. At that point. I had maybe 3000. Right. Mm-hmm. And you were doing Miley Cyrus. And then, okay, so then the second you heard that, oh, wow, my Instagram's being used as like a- Yeah, as, as a like presentation an of me as like an audition, yeah. step one, I gotta, I gotta do this differently? Yes, yes. Really? Absolutely, yeah. It, and it, it works. Yeah. It works so dramatically, it's crazy. Yeah. I can't even believe it. But um, yeah, I started realizing like you need to start filming the things that you're doing, you know, promoting yourself and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I actually had a call with, um, with their, was it his manager, Panic's manager, um, at a laundromat. I was like doing my laundry and he called me to like, be like, is this person normal? Can she work with us? You know? And that was so looking back at that. It's so funny. I was just a kid. I had like no money, you yeah. know, it's like just barely scraping by, you know, yeah. sneaking like little whiskey bottles into the place I was going. Cause I wasn't buying drinks, drinks anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. It's just really cool to think back on that. <laughs> and then you're, so you started posting more mm-hmm. yeah. like documenting you with panic, documenting mm-hmm. you just playing bass. Yeah. And then it started growing. Well, n- no, it's, um, because very quickly after that, we were just in rehearsals and gone. And yeah. then, um, after the first show, Panic has such a hardcore following. Yeah. Um, and they are very much similar to Incubus. They are a band, you know, not like w- working with anybody else. You're more, you're the band of the artist. Right. But now you're the band. So when we did our first gig and it was like a surprise announcement, the followers kind of just like skyrocketed on their own. Right. Um, but more so what I'm talking about that changed is when I started promoting myself, you know, once I got home and I could. Um, the different musical opportunities that came outside of that were very different. And I, I've noticed the difference between when I am posting stuff and when I'm not, um, it's like night and day, like Mm. within a few days, different calls start coming in. Just as when you're active opportunities become active. Yes. Yeah. And that's not, you know, it doesn't have to be like a huge gig, but just something that is really like fulfilling for me, you know, make a ton of noise for Jesus Molina. (laughs) <laughs> so you must be very disciplined well i try <laughs> but definitely talent discipline and opportunity so many people with talent but they don't have discipline they don't yeah. want to practice and they don't have opportunities some right. other they have great opportunities they don't have talent right not even a right a discipline but when you have a big talent and you put it a huge discipline these two combine, all the opportunity is going to run behind you. Yeah. How can I be better and better and better every single day? Yeah. That's how I realized that. What I realized is I really need to practice every day. Yeah. And 
till I die. Look at Chick Corea before he died. Yeah. Practicing every single day. Oh, yeah. Herbie. Yeah. Practicing every do, do you think Herbie needs to practice? Man. But he chooses. Yeah. That, that's, that's the beauty about music. You're always going to discover new things. Doesn't matter what level you are. Welcome one of my favorite humans. Yeah. James Pomeroy. Yes. Okay, so how about suit and tie? Suit and tie what? Which parts did I write? Yeah. Um, let me see. I can He wrote that. I think I wrote that. No, he wrote that too. Cause he also wrote she ain't nothing but a little doozy when she does it, which is hilarious. <laughs> um right? Yep. And we don't mind all the watching. I wrote that whole so he wrote the first half of the verse, I wrote the second half of the verse. Then he wrote the hook. Long as I got my suit and tie, I'm going to the floor tonight. Let me show you a few things. Then I wrote, let me show you a few things. So we literally was going back and forth. So <laughs> I love that. He wrote the first half of the verse. I wrote the second half. He wrote the first half of the hook. I wrote the second half. Um, and when and when you're doing that, it's hook and melody? Same writer? Yeah. Yeah. I love Although that. Although we did both too. You know, there yeah. are also times where... I would do a melody and he would write the words or he would do the melody and I would write the words. Yeah, yeah. For the most part, probably because we've written so many songs, you know, like if I wasn't there or he wasn't there, we wouldn't be doing any of that. We would just go in the booth and just write it. Yeah. But, um, I don't know, man. That was one of my most fun experiences of any kind working on the 2020 so fun. I'm always excited to work with Rihanna because she's just such a great collaborator and platform and just so supportive and just a good experience so like i'll go to fucking jupiter if rihanna was like because yeah. i hate traveling too yeah so. Oh, okay so that's probably why my response was muted because i don't want to go anywhere but you know if it's rihanna i'm, I'm out of here <laughs> you know what i'm saying it seems like you and rihanna and that's not true for a lot of people bro yeah well you can tell just even from the outside that you and rihanna have a special relationship um her song James's Joint, of course, which if you listen to that song, sounds it. I mean, it is a James Fauntleroy song, just sung by Rihanna. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is. Yeah, what, it is. What is the story of that song? Is that what happened? No, it's like I went to the studio because, like I said, even because Rihanna's been like false starting albums for since her last album, <laughs> and I still go work on that shit because. It's Rihanna, you know, it's not even the, especially not at this point, it's not even about the money or none of that. It's just yeah. like, you know, that's my nigga. But um, what am I telling you about? Oh, yeah. So James I went in the joint. studio and um, Omar, Omar Grant, he's now running Rock Nation over there. I'm so proud of him. But um, at the time he was Rihanna's A&R. And he always tells everybody, like, don't bring me a Rihanna song. You know what I mean? Because that's just, she doesn't want that. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's why she is who she is. Yeah. And so I noticed, I rarely go to writing camps. One, because it's not fair. Because, you know, I'm just going to blow everybody's shit out of the Let's water. But I rarely go yeah. to writing camps. Yeah. But I noticed when I've gone to camps for her, people are still doing a fucking Rihanna song whenever I go in there. Which always blows my mind because I've seen him tell people not to do that so many times. And they literally just do it anyway. And so, um, which is, is 
you know, I'm just saying that for those of you that ever get asked to do a Rihanna song out there. But just when I got song, there, kind of everybody was doing trap, which that's not necessarily Rihanna, but like that's just what was so super popular at that time. Yeah, I mean, still at this time, all times. So everybody had a trap beat, and the producer of that song is a is a guy named Shea Taylor. You know Shea Taylor? No. Oh my God, he's an absolute fucking genius jazz musician. Amazing. And he's a producer. He's produced so many things, so many like just incredible songs throughout time. And so he can make amazing trap beats. He has the skills to do that. And but the problem was that he can also make like incredible jazz pieces. And so when I went in there, he did what what you know made sense, which is he pulled up one of his trap beats, and I was like, "What is this shit?" You know what I mean? I was like, "Cause and one it was two things. It was one and when I walked." to the room i heard trap beats coming out of every room yeah and then two i'm like there's no way that i'm gonna sit here with a genius um jazz musician and waste time making a trap song yeah, yeah, yeah. when everyone else is doing a trap song so it was just double whammy of i'm not doing this so i was like play me the most complex thing you can think of in your computer right now because that's what i'm feeling and it wasn't even like you know, because that's the other thing is, like, I'm not, I'm just trying to make the best song because that's what what our relationship is. Me and Rihanna's relationship is based on taste. It's a taste thing. That's To me, that's the secret of her and a lot of people like us um, of our lives is it's taste. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I'm, like, um, out of respect to my taste levels, like, I need some some tasty shit <laughs> and so he pulls up this jazz piece that he had been working on and um i wrote to the song like you know what i thought it, it was saying to me and then i left and i didn't name it because i was like drop the mic like don't play me no trap beats again yeah, not yeah. everybody you know what i mean like because if you call me to come do a trap song now, if you got that money, I'll come do that. I'll trap you if you <laughs> want to get in the trap. But um, for the most part, even now, like, um, I I really want to push myself, push the audience, and push the art. You know, I just want to push things. And so I didn't even name the shit. I just walked out. Rihanna's engineer is, you know, over the years, we've become really good friends. We spent so much time together working with Rihanna. And her personal engineer was the engineer for this session for me to record the song, too. Probably because we're cool. You yeah. know what I mean? And so when I left, he, I didn't name it. He just typed James Joint like a James song. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and maybe also he was being funny because he's a funny guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then when Rihanna saw it, I wasn't there, but I'm told when Rihanna saw it, she was like, oh, this is perfect. This is the name of the song. I'm also told another famous hater was trying to convince her to change the the name of the song after playing it eight times in the studio. But she stuck to her guns, named that beautiful song after me and, you know, the entendre of the title and the topic. And I just thought that was genius. But I didn't even name that song because I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I figured figured you did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't have named it James Joint. Yeah. Yeah. As arrogant as I sound in this interview, I would would never never name a song after myself. It's all comedy. It's all comedy. (laughs) That makes sense. But and then also just because if there is a song 
for another artist to title James Joint. It is that song. It sounds like it could be on your solo album. Yeah, oh man, that's that's because when I'm working with certain people, her being a really good example, yeah. it really brings the real me out because yeah. I know I I can do that. You know, yes. like I have to and and any writer or producer, you know, it's a service business. So we have to uh try at least to meet the demands of the the customer. In our business, a lot of times the customer is wrong. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And so that's been my, the times that I've gone against what the customer asked for or when they were just so wrong about what they needed that it was a waste of time for me to do this wrong thing when I can do the right thing, you guys cannot take it, and then I have a good song now. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I've had I've done that a million times. <laughs> People come in and ask me for an up-tempo, but they really need a ballad. Yep. And then I'm like, here you go. <laughs> And so, you know, I've done that a lot of times. But for with Rihanna and, and certain other artists, um, you know, you'll get more of me in the music because I feel comfortable doing yeah. that. Because I'm also good at completely taking my own, um, you know, parameters out of a situation because I'm yeah. really about, like, what's the target? What's the, what's the platform? What's the message? You know, like, I don't really think of it as a spiritual incense burning thing although i love spirits and incense but you know it's it's really like a a science for me especially having done it so many times and and at such a level um i can do whatever yeah. you know what i mean but there's just certain circumstances that bring something else out and those have been the best songs of my career period we got luke holland here internet sensation drummer Whoa. of the youth what do i call <laughs> Drummer, I thought you were going to say of the used. Lord of the dogs. Lord of the dogs. Yeah, you are dog lord. Knowing your worth is crucial. Like, I, you know, I, you said this is an honest podcast. I feel like a lot of hired drummers get kind of shit on when it comes to um, what they're getting paid yeah. and stuff. And, of course, it's like, what are you bringing to the table? But there's some absolutely incredible guys I know that get so severely underpaid. Um yeah, just kind of knowing your worth is really important. I feel like, um, I mean, having a naturally good business sense is like, how do you teach that? Yeah. It's it's a tough thing. There is some like intellect that comes with that. I think it's more about generating opportunities. How do you generate opportunities? How do you put yourself out there? How do you make yourself available in a way that's not desperate? Yeah. But show, and how do you show your your worth i truly feel like if anybody doesn't move out of their like hometown and they just stay there forever it's like you're missing so much growth there's a lot of growth to be had if you move out yeah yeah it's good to put yourself in that uncomfortable vulnerable totally. situation of leaving your nest yep. or whatever your your place is where you can just kind of yeah just be take it easy and, and be comfortable and, and challenge e yourself and even though when i was in arizona i found so many incredible people to work with jeremy tremp cameron mizell these people that did my video audio which honestly, I, I look at those videos and I still to this day, like, you know, seven, eight years later, the quality is so good. And I think that's why, like, the YouTube channel really kind of blew up back for then. Sure. It was just kind of, nobody was really doing that yet, I, th yeah. I feel. You were ahead of the game for sure. Yeah, I, and I really have them to thank a lot for that. Because um, your videos just looked like high, super high production. Yeah. Like commercial or movie or like. It's crazy. Yeah. I, I, I was able to find these locations that, like, they were trying to get their name out there and I was getting millions of views per video. So they're like, well, you know, we're not going to charge you. Just put our name, put our yeah. contact. And I was like, absolutely. Let's yeah. do it. And then 
it's really cool. Like Jeremy and Cameron never charged me ever. It was just a really cool. Um, we were all just growing simultaneously together, and like it wasn't like I put the video out and I'm the only one stoked. They would also be reading all the comments, watching the views go up, and it was just, we were all just like mutually like, let's keep this shit going, you know? Yeah. Oh so, yeah. It's good. Good times. Good times. It's everyone was investing in their own careers exactly, and, and just going all in and. Smart. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah, And and because of that, every it's when it's a labor of love like that, people like try their best Yeah, when it's not about the money and it's just, it's just, just, just about making great art and having people see it and like it and growing. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how different the motivator is compared to just like if cash is the motivator. Totally. Dude. It's, it's one thing I I really miss about those times. Um, most people that you work with now, you know, of course money is like the, the thing and, it, it, you know, it complicates things sometimes. Um, and then sometimes you don't get the, the work ethic that the people that were doing it for free because they were stoked. It, it's just like a weird thing. Yeah. But I always pay everybody now. And um, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, make a ton of noise. I'm Marianne. Throw Marianne. Oh, wow. So how did Post to Be come about? Because that's one of those songs where, I mean, first of all, Smash. Yeah. A lot of people involved in that song, right? Yeah. Like, you mustard, yep. Uh, Chris Brown, Janae Iko, yep. How does how did post to be come together? Yeah, so um, I went to go pull up on uh, DJ Mustard. You know what I mean? And I was like, yo, what's up? What's good? You know, this was during the time that I mean, he was killing it. Yeah, you know, um, had the radio on lock. Yep, you know Absolutely. what I'm saying? Yeah, and um, I'm like, yo, this is a California native. Yo, mustard, I gotta pull up on you. What's up? Um, I pulled up on him. And then um, at Chalice, actually. Okay. Yep. I uh, pulled up on him at Chalice. And then, um, you know, he played me a few beats. And he kind of skimmed over Post to Be. And I was like, hey, man, hold up. Go back to that one. He went back to that one. Um, and myself and Sam, we uh, we started, like, playing around with the melody. You know what I mean? Shout out to Micah. Shout out to all the writers and the people who contributed on that song. Um, so after I did my verse, you know, I hit up my, my boy, Chris Brown. I was like, yo, man, I need you to hop on this record. He like, hey, man, pull up. Oh, so yeah. I pulled up on, on CB at the record plant. And um, and yeah, we wrote the verse. Because right he was already there? Yeah, he was. Okay. He was working on um he was working on some other music. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, Pull up on me, I'll be at the studio tomorrow. And um that was one of his favorite places to record yeah. all the time. You know, and mine too. You know, and Pharrell. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so many other yeah, and artists. So many others, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Um so yeah, I pulled up on him at the record plant and uh yeah, we 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 did the verse right there. We wrote the verse. You know what I mean? Um, what did you already have with Post to be? Just my verse. Just, just my verse in the hook. Yeah. Yeah, just my verse and the hook. And uh, and the whole beat. On, yep. Yeah. And the whole beat. The synth line and everything. Is, all of that yeah, was yeah, there. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I pulled up on- Because that song hits you immediately. Ooh, yeah. was I about to be? Ooh. Yeah, yeah that's a big vibe. Um, but yeah, uh, I pulled up on CB. And then um, shout out to Bobby Love, too, because he was there in the session with me. We wrote the verse right there. You know what I mean? And then I sent it to Janae. And then Janae worked on it and sent it back to me. You know what I mean? So nice. it was a whole, it takes a village. Wow. It takes a village. Wow. You know what I'm saying? So um, shout out to them. That is my biggest record today. Shout out to Pharrell. And that's yeah. what I love, you know, about working with him. Yeah. I remember um, flying down to Miami and shout out to KP, you know, who connected us at yeah. that particular time. Um, I was on Sony. Mm-hmm. 
And um, yeah, I flew down to Miami, man. And I remember when I pulled up to the studio, there was this right, this white um, Brooklyn Bentley sitting in the front. I'm like, ooh, look at this. It had to be his. It was his. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And then I pulled up in the studio. Uh, Chad was also in there. And, um, and Chad they, Hugo. Yep. And um, man, they start cooking up right on the spot. And that's what I really loved and appreciated about uh, Pharrell as well. You know, it wasn't like he had, you know, these songs like, okay, listen to these and oh, you know, and tell me what you think. You yep. know, maybe you can sing this one. You know what I mean? Yep. But he like, decorated a song specifically for Omarion and I feel like Touch is one of those unique yep. rec one of the one of his unique records that definitely stand out in his catalog. So working with Pharrell was just a pure joy. You know, um a full circle moment with him and I would be just amazing. You yeah. know what I mean? Ladies and gentlemen make a lot of noise for Rance Dobson. If you're a producer, a real producer that understands the art of space, yeah. You can be a great musical director. Yeah. And if you know how to solve problems fast and still smile at the same time in front of the camera, even yeah. though somebody's fucking up the fucking song <laughs> and the click tracks off, you still got to smile <laughs> and then tell the artist, yo, keep going, say this. The band, the shit's fucking up. And then you go tell the, the <laughs> monitor guy, hey, you're fucking up. Like, what are we doing? Can we fix this? And you got to smile the whole time. So it's really about being a problem solver and yeah. being organized and just having a good team, man. Like, I'm just blessed to be able to have the Avengers to where, you know, back in the day I was MDing and doing a lot of stuff to where now my job is a lot easier because God has blessed me with the coldest musicians alive. Like, yeah. you know, shout out to Damo and Kyrie, you know, and Quentin and, you know, Chris Payton. Like, all the, all the, all our people are really like, I'm making them MDs now, yeah. you know, like, yeah. you know, of course we did for Beyonce. We, uh, we got, got the call to do the Dubai show. Yep. So I MD'd that. The difference with me is when I walked in, um, for the rehearsal, I walked in with me, Kyrie and Damo. So, yo, we're the MDs. What y'all want to do? Yeah. Most people won't do that because they're selfish and they really, you know, to yeah, the yeah, yeah. so it's to the point now where Dame, Kyrie, Kyrie, I left and Kyrie killed it and, and Damo had to go to Alicia Keys to MDR. Yeah. We're we're really like killing the game. Man. Yeah. And, and, yeah. You're scaling it. That's how that's how you grow. Yeah. And then shout out to the homies of Omar and Adam Blackstone too. Yeah. Uh Omar Edwards. Yeah, we're yeah. we're like in cahoots. People don't know. We're homies though. Yeah, you guys like, are all Yeah, it's like it's either you're with Adam or you're with us, West yeah. Coast or Omar, but or man, man, well, we're really homies man, for real. So when you're talking to Beyonce about the Dubai show and it's like three weeks for this huge show, what is her vision like in that first phone call on a high level? Oh, yeah, her vision is amazing. She she explained what she wanted to do and, the you know, I want I want 30 strings. I'm going to have 40 dancers. I'm going to have horn sections. We're going to have this. So we want to make it, you know, really feel like a big band. And, you know, so we... we all I need is direction, and we gonna, we going to bring it home. Yeah. You know, we're going to do what we do. It's, it's in us. So a three-week rehearsal prep for a show versus months for Coachella. Yeah, I mean, shit, Nas, we did a show in Nas for a two-day rehearsal in in Japan for an hour and 30-minute show. <laughs> and and we didn't get to meet the nigga until we got to Japan. This was years ago, though. Wow. So... You rely on the DJ a yeah, lot in that situation. No, no we we're Playback. a band. We don't know. We we 
when you understand that if you're like the difference between 1500 and most other bands, we're a band full of producers. Yes. Full of real producers yep. that's doing it in real life. So yes. this band thing is like a blessing and a hobby and, and it's just it's just something that keeps our spirits up for us to keep making music. Make a ton of noise for Cassius J. Yes. Chris Moten and Devin Sticks Taylor. Iggy. Yes, Let's yes, go. Yes, Let's go. You know, Skrillex told me this years ago, and it, and it really resonated with me. He told me, if you have to think about something for more than a minute, mm-hmm. and if it's not just yes, mm-hmm. then it's no. That's yeah, how I feel. Sure. That's how me and Zaytoven make beats. If you got to think too hard about it, that ain't it. Right. If it come natural, like everything came natural. Leaving last night with Chris and Michelle performing, everything came natural. It yeah. wasn't a thought. Yes. And that's when you know you got something. It's it's you and um, Cardi yeah. B and Migos. Like, and how, did, how did that come together? Shout out to my boy, uh, Nunstop the Hitmaker, too. Hitman, that's not Hitman. He's a producer. On it. it came about, I rock with Quavo and Takeoff and Offset so hard. Like, I was there at the beginning. And they were trying to find a, a, a deal. And I kept them close. So when Offset started dating, Cardi, the label called me in to go, with, go in with him. Atlantic called me in to go in with Cardi and work. I went in, watched every producer play what they had to play. And I was like, you know what? I got a song with Offset on it right now. I told Cardi, I think it'll work for you. I didn't know I had gained that same beat to Quavo. No, I gained the same beat to Thug and Future. There's a whole other version of that same song on the internet with Future, Thug, Quavo. Wow. And as I think somebody, else. I didn't know I did all that, but I gave it to uh, Cardi. Cardi called Sit. It's like, I you know this dude? He's like, no, nah, that's, the, that's the guy. She was like, well, he just played me one of your songs. I don't know what they did when I left the scene. I just heard it. And I approved on it. I signed the call. I was like, damn, I didn't call it. Matter of fact, sit all sit called me and said, Don't get that beat to nobody else. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. yeah. He called me like, don't get it. Cause he when he found out I played it for, he kind of was mad because that poster went on the culture album. I don't fuck around, get hit wife one of their hits, and they going on her album. Yeah. <laughs> I, orthodox. I always work, I work the weirdest way. That's why you send me a, a motherfucking clip of trap jazz. I go show the whole world. <laughs> he sent me a fucking MP3 of him rapping on the song. I go play it for the whole world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just work for yeah. That's always work for me. That's how I got to work. Man, I played it for Cardi. She liked it. She jumped on it. So that's how the whole song came about. Devin Sticks Taylor. <laughs> Let's go, dude. What's up, bro? So I think a big part of your playing uh, that makes you so special as a drummer analyzing you is your foot. Oh, yeah? You have such a, a strong kick. Oh, man. Thank you. I appreciate when it. When you're doing all these crazy combos and your fills and everything, like your foot, and I've I've sat next to you many a time and <laughs> yeah. watched your foot just be like, and so hard, man. Yeah, man. And you're not a big guy. Where does all the power in the foot come from? How do you get the kick drum so loud? Hey, man. I don't know. I guess I drinking milk and I ate my Wheaties when I was younger. I guess my dad he always wanted me to play hard. Like I can't feel you. Like I can't. I can't feel it. You know what I mean? And mm. and a big thing was for him. He was like, "Yo, just stay in the pocket." Like he used to tell me all the time. Like don't leave. And if I got out of there, he was like, he'll put his hand in there and be like, "Come on." But he was just like, "Bro, I can't feel you. You got to play harder." And then even with playing with my uncle, Pastor John P. Key, shout out to Unc. What's up, Unc? He wants you to play hard too. Like, yo, know, he wanna feel it. Boom, bot, boom, boom, bot, boom, 
<laughs> like you gotta, I don't care if it's no mics on the drum and it's ten thousand people out there. They they need to be able to feel or hear something, bro. So I guess it just came from that, you know. And I'm like, man, well, I want people to hear me. I gotta get it, you know, louder and harder. Yeah. But without busting the drums and you know and breaking them, so. I guess that's where it came from. And then also college, too, kind of helped me a little bit, too. Just, like, my foot technique, my professors and everything. Like, they showed me, like, some cool ways of getting things done. So I guess that's what it is. And, and big God, thank you. God bless you with that foot. Where'd you go to college? Uh, Atlanta Institute of Music. Nice. When I mess up during the show, it's like, you're a drummer and musician, so you know how it goes. Like, if you're doing a show... Or you're just playing, period, in the studio. Like, if you mess up, well, really, in the show, if you mess up, it's like you think about that the, the whole the yeah. rest of the show, right? Yes. Or is it just me? No, totally. Yeah. You gotta get you got to get over it. Yeah, bro. If so not, you're just like, oh, hard. that, what, the third verse? Oh, my God. I really missed that. Like, I missed the hit. And yeah, one <laughs> like, single hit. Yeah. And, it's, and it's a single hit that's happening amongst 64th notes. Oh, man. <laughs> it's like, no one knows. It's just something so simple, like... It's so funny, man. Yeah, it's cool. Like, I I, I remember um, Ian Cobbs with Usher, we was playing, and, and this is stuff that, like, and we just add now since we know, like, the show pretty much. So some things that he does that I catch with him or, or some stuff that I do that, you know, he'll catch with me. I remember one day he looked at me, he was like, I stab on the one. I'm like, all right, cool. We playing, and I missed it, bro. He was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I thought about it the rest of the show. I'm like, man, I'm sorry, bro. But yeah, man, it's it's cool though. Meanwhile, the audience is clapping on the one and three. <laughs> they don't know nothing is going on. Like, no, they don't know nothing. You're, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they don't hear that mess up. Nah, nah, you gotta nah, let nah, go nah. of the mess up. Yeah, I know. Immediately, I gotta, I gotta get out of my head when it comes to that. Just treat it like jazz, right? If you mess up, you just uh, act who like cares? you. You act like you don't, and then therefore it was intentional, and then therefore you're like, I meant to do that. I mean, I meant to do that, guys. Jazz, you know? baby. Jazz, man. Ladies and gentlemen, Christian James Hand. This is the thing that I've been dying to find my entire life. Because this is all the things that I care about. This is all the things that I want to do. I love making people laugh. Because as a traumatized human being, there's nothing better than getting people to not be traumatized. Mm. Uh, and I get to be a music fan. And I get to like show people how much I love music and how much they love music. Because they're going to be re-engaged. None of the songs I do are deep album cuts that nobody's heard before. Yeah. You know, unless you show up for a Queen Terra where I've, I'm getting you to fucking come to learn how amazing Pantera are by rewarding your patience for the first hour with some, with some Queen. Um, most of the stuff is stuff that you're fully engaged in and already know, but you're listening to it in an entirely new way. And you're getting, and the thing that I didn't realize happened is because we're musicians and we've been part of the experience of creating music in a studio and working in that way, we already have like a tertiary eq understanding of songs and we can listen into them and you could you could focus on a baseline one of the things i didn't realize that i would do with this thing is teach people that skill and so much feedback i get from people is like i can now hear things in songs in a way that i couldn't before and it was a transferable skill from song to song they're like dude i can hear bass lines where before i couldn't find a bass line because all they needed to know was where that bass line sat mm -hmm. and what they were listening to and then the nice thing about the jam card ones was how many people like Phil Lasseter every single time would be like, dude, I got to go to the studio. I'm so fucking inspired. And then oh, the other yeah. thing of like Phil's favorite thing was like, bro, I'm going to start leaving mistakes in. 
Yes. He's like, I'm going to stop fucking fixing everything. He's yeah. like, these motherfuckers have mistakes, all these bum notes. There's people slipping out of time. I'm like, yeah, dude, humanity. And now with Elmo Lovano, <laughs> it is John J.R. Robinson. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. All right. The rock with you intro. Right. Most iconic drum intro, drum fill ever in such a small amount of time. How did you write that fill? Oh, my God. So we were cutting for the Off the Wall album, uh, the song Rock With You. But um, I was very fortunate to be the mainstay drummer through the entire record. So Quincy would cast different rhythm section guys and put them around me. So I was very fortunate to play on every song. Amazing. And uh, got to play with different bass players, you know, like Lewis Johnson um, and uh, Greg Finnegan's playing synth bass on Don't Stop. But... Um, it started by, after I cut a couple of songs, and then they asked me to come back and do, uh, do the rest of the record on Monday. And I, that basically was party weekend central before that. <laughs> got, got to the studio, boom, boom, boom. We did Don't Stop. <clears throat> and then I get asked, uh, okay, so what's your schedule like coming up? And uh, we want to get your band in and record this song. And I knew, Quincy knew, that it was a hit record written by Rod Temperton. And the song happened to be called Rock With You. And we did not know it at the time. But So we were all cast. It was Hawk Walensky on keys, Bobby Watson on bass, and David Williams on guitar. And we were in um, Westlake B, which uh, ironically is where I cut Gaga. Wow. They, they wanted the exact same vibe, but X amount of decades later. But <laughs> So we go in. We start listening to Rod's demo. And Rod's very precise and simplistic and has everybody playing a specific part. Now, the drum part, no. There was no drum part. It was just motion. But like the bass part Bobby's playing, it was pretty much verbatim. However, Bobby took liberties and played the most melodic bass part of all. Not until the correct take. Mm. So take one, I don't know. I probably kind of, you know, I get, I cut it with a click that I programmed, and back then it was a Yuri old film click. Seven frame film click. Wow. And so I got the tempo, blah, blah, blah. We start rehearsing and then we go, okay, we're ready to cut. So take one. Eh, no magic. You know, okay. Well, let's do it again. Okay. Little fill, whatever. Take two. Eh, maybe a little better. People are learning their parts. Time's going on. I'm looking in the control room and I can see Quincy and Rod in there. Rod's puffing on his red Marlboros. And uh, take three, a lot better, no magic. And we're sitting there kind of in the studio in a small room. And I see Quincy get up and Rod get up and come out of the door. And Quincy stands right by me. And I'm going, oh, shit. And Rod's standing right here smoking his Marlboros with his English accent. And and Quincy goes, um, JR, he goes, um, if you could come up with a fill, an intro fill that the whole world would forever identify with this song, <laughs> could you do that? And may maybe on this next take. And uh, I looked at him and I go, sure. <laughs> like, like John Belushi, like. <laughs> and, and, and all the guys are like going like this to me and like going, oh, fuck. You know, like, no pressure. No pressure. What are you going to do? And, and, and. Little did they know 
that they are going to be put in the exact same amount of pressure because of what's going through my brain. But I didn't know what I was going to do. So I immediately, I, I reflected back to the Rod demo, which was, it was weird. And then I thought, what do I hate most about drum fills? I hate when the, the let's just take two examples. One is straight 16th notes and triplets or putting them together is just wrong. Yeah. It's wrong. And so I go, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> but I did it more in a, a syncopated march world. So then, then uh, okay, I, I raise, take four, let's go. And all of a sudden I hear four clicks and then I have to go. So the four clicks were click, 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 click. And, and I just did that, but I used my military training, my march training, and I added syncopation, and I made sure there was a hole that you could drive an 18-wheeler through to get to the next downbeat. But it all came spontaneously. In that one take. And I was like, thank you, God. In that one take. And then we never did another take. No way. That was it. That fill set the magic for the whole take. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, everybody's playing differently. Bobby's bass line is completely different than the other three takes. Because you hit that downbeat and everyone was like, ooh. That's what it was. And, and Quincy knew oh. they were up dancing and shit and was like, rot in a rot. It was great. It was great. You know, and then blah, 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 blah. So that was... And then we kind of knew we had cut a number one record. Oh. Which is, I have people asking me, and I, you know, I am working on my book now. Yeah. Which would be a 2024 release. But Amazing. I have this, this is being thought about, uh, about how do you know that? How do you think about that? Yeah. So it's like all of us looked at each other and we go, we did it. Wow. That's so much pressure and you did it in one take. It just came out of you. And there was no pressure the minute that... I guess the minute the fill happened, but it was really the downbeat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, as a drummer, man, when you land on that downbeat, I mean, there is, that's, that's word. Yeah. I love that that's one take and it wasn't this like perfectly written or articulated thing or it wasn't Quincy walking in being like, can you do something kind of like stupid? No, like, no. I, I mean, in other like, sessions, Quincy's come in with a little piece of music and he's written out some fills for me for other stuff and I'm, you know, and his penmanship was just perfect. Yeah. You know, it was the real deal. For sure. And I go, you really want me to play that? And he goes, yeah, play that. You know, anyway, but not on this one. Oh, my God. So you knew you had a hit. 100%. Larnell Lewis. What's happening? How are you, my bro? <laughs> I'm well. How are you doing? I'm great, man. How do you handle difficulties? Mm, that's an even better question. <laughs> so when you say difficulties... Life, life difficulties. Life, yeah. And music is second. Like it's like, how do you handle all the life difficulties when uh, the curveballs that hit you? Mm -hmm. Whether it's your kids, whether it's your wife, whether it's the business, whether yeah. it's uh, all these things that come up. You know, all, there's so many, so many things happen just in being a touring musician and you being in Paris and operating this company, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and being responsible for bringing in enough income to support your family and everything. Mm -hmm. Then on top of that, you got your job as an academic. Then on top of that, you got your job as a husband, mm -hmm. job as a father. Difficulties. Yeah, I can start again. I can start again. I can start again. That's it, because you just like just like Pro Tools, it's not if, it's when it's gonna crash, right? Yeah. <laughs> like computers, right? <laughs> Knowing so, <laughs> that and being okay with that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you don't have to be okay with it, but you do have to know that accepting of the fact that it 
is going to happen and you can choose how to react to it. Yeah. You will either have a copy of another DAW. You will either have another computer. Like it's just making these backups, these plans and talking to people. Mm. What do you do? So like you asked me what happens for me. So there's therapy. Yeah. There's coaching. Yeah. Right. There are mentors. There are peer mentors. There's family. There are, at least for me, like pastors. There are people I can just talk to you know and there's accepting that it's okay to just have a moment to just break down yeah. if it's really crappy yeah just it's crappy yeah that's it that we are in the moment and the moment is crappy do you break down alone or break down with your wife or both both yeah, yeah. rarely alone yeah rarely alone and that's only because i probably have to figure out what's next yeah but i will stop and just be like this is not cool. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I can start again. I can be happy. I know some of what I need to do. I just have to set it in motion and just allow things to happen or figure out the rest. Just let it hit me. Move on to the next. I'm live with Grayson Nekrutman. Nekrutman, get it right. We're, we're calling you Grayson Nekrutman. You did it right. Most people don't. You, you Some must people see are that. haters and just look down on whatever. It, do, it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, true. You have to do you as an entrepreneur. Absolutely. You, you are you. Yeah. You should do what feels good to you. Mm-hmm. And you should look at the market and see what are people responding to. And if what they're responding to is also something that feels good to you. Do it. That's your move. Do it. If what they're responding to is something that you tried but you don't like it, maybe don't do it. Because mm-hmm. what you like and what feels good to you is more important than anything. Because what could happen is someone responds like, let's say you hate jazz but you made a jazz video <laughs> and it popped off. You're like, oh, I have to make another one of these jazz yeah, videos. I never want to do that. You don't want to get stuck into no. something that you don't enjoy. No, no, like no. number one, enjoy what you do. Number two, how do you make a living based off what you enjoy? There was one big pop off. So it's crazy. Cause I still think about this. I get chills. So my grandmother passed away in October. Of, so it wasn't this October. It wasn't last October. It was the October for some two I'm years sorry. ago. Yeah. And the day she passed away, I recorded uh, the caravan drum solo. Like, like cliche drum solo, I know. And that got like 9 million views. Wow. And it was the craziest thing because like I wasn't in the mood to record and I kind of just was like, just like, I'll do it. It was like in the afternoon. I just like spent like six hours recording it and recorded it. And it didn't take off right away. On Instagram, it did. Like the day of or the next day, it like got like 700 comments, whatever. And I was like, oh, it's cool. Post on YouTube. It got copyrighted, and I was like, eh, whatever. Put it back up like a week later, forgot about it. I look back, it's at like 1 million. No way. And then I look back, it's 3 million. On YouTube? Yeah. Wow. And now it's like 9, I think, or something like that. And I was just like, what? And that's when people were really like, funny as it sounds, people were referring to me as that one video right. in person. or would, Oh, I saw your caravan video. Caravan oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> caravan guy, yeah. Black caravan. So it's like, do it. Do it. I'm on the internet. Do it for me. I'm going to throw a chair at you. <laughs> But literally, like that, I realized the reach of one video was crazy. That one video. Why? I have no clue. So sometimes it makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. It has. It makes no sense because yeah. other people who made that cover. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Other people did that drum solo. Why me? Right. And Ibrahim Malouf is with me. I, I wasn't expecting him to come and listen to my show. And I met Thomas and uh, Quincy uh, Jones' production team in Montreux. And they they told me, you know, uh, Quincy is gonna listen to your show. He's gonna be on this on this side of the stage. And um, and they told me also, don't be 
sad or anything if you see him leaving the show during the concert but this is what what he does in general he, he doesn't stay and it's and i asked i remember i said but but what uh how can i know if he liked the show or not and i don't remember who answered me uh, someone told me well you know sometimes when he likes the show he orders food mm. so Okay, I kept that in mind, and I was like, I mean, if he leaves, he leaves. That's life. But at least I can say Quincy Jones heard me. Watched and you play. He watched yeah. me play, and yeah. he heard my trumpet. So I I was playing on the big stage, and um, like every 15 seconds, I was like just, how do you say it? Like looking quickly. You say sneaking or something? Yeah, you were glancing. Glancing, yeah. You're glancing. kind of distracted half. Yeah, distracted half, and yeah, just, yeah. just looking at him to see if he, if, is he enjoying or not. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, at some point we were like at half of the concert, I was expecting him to leave at some point, you know. Yeah. And uh, and I was always like glancing, looking and da, 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 da. And at some point I saw a huge plate of sushi <laughs> arriving <laughs> towards him. Yeah. And and while I was playing in my mind, I was like, yes, yes, That's it. yes, yes. You got the tip. He's staying, <laughs> you know. So at the end of the of the show, I went uh, directly towards him and I said, "I'm so honored that you're here and that you listened to this show, and uh, I hope you liked it." And he was like, "Oh man, I loved it, man. I love what you do." And uh, you know, Quincy. Yep. So. Uh, I kept He's talking. Like, You're a Scorpio. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, definitely. This is one of the first questions he asked me. <laughs> and uh, and he said, "Yeah, I'm a Libra. I'm Libra. Yeah. You're a Scorpio. Oh, nice." <laughs> and uh, and yeah, and I talked to him like maybe half an hour, forty five minutes, or something like this. And he said, "That's awesome." Yeah, and he, he suggested me to to keep this connection with the Considerance Production and yeah. work with them. Yeah. So, yeah, that was crazy. That was one of And them. then it just happened like that was it. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend, Mono Neon. Hey. What's up, Mono? I'm all right. We're in Paris together. Yep. I grew up around my grandma and and I grew up around here in Mavis. It's just a it's just comfort. It's just that's why I probably wear quilts because it's comfort. I like to be comfortable. That's all. I just like yeah. to be comfortable. Yeah. Do you ever get hot in these quilts? I'm hot now, but shit, I'm thugging <laughs> it out. I'm going to thug it out. I don't care how hot it is, I'm going to wear my shit. It's like the hottest day in Paris for the for the for the whole year. They're saying, "Yep, yeah. I don't care. I don't care how hot it is. I'm gonna wear all my quilt." As cliche as it may sound, just just be yourself out here. Even if people are talking shit about you, just always be yourself. But continue to grow and cultivate what you're doing. Don't get complacent. Even when you have your own thing, it's so quick to. It can be so easy to um, when you have your own thing to just feel like well, I'm, I'm the shit and all this. But don't don't do that. Keep your ears open. Keep your mind open. Your heart open. Just keep growing, keep listening, and still cultivate what you're doing. And just always be yourself. Just always be yourself, no matter what. I don't care where you are, who you with, always be yourself. Because the right people are going to come to you. The right frequency is going to come to you if you just be yourself. That's all it is. That's yeah. beautiful. Kaz Rodriguez. What's up, my man? How, How you, you doing, doing, buddy? Yeah, good. Thank you for having me. You have synesthesia. Yeah. Which I want to talk about because... <laughs> someone who doesn't have it and researching it, it seems like, wow, that'd be amazing to have, but I'm, I'm sure there's also a downside to it. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, will you tell everyone like what that is in case they don't know and then what it's like for you? It's crazy. So like the whole story behind it is this, like synesthesia is, um, it's kind of a rare phenomenon that it's a rare condition. Doesn't sound like good me saying condition, but... <laughs> 
It's a rare condition. Um, <laughs> basically, it's it's a form of I see color in the way that I write music. So I'm self-taught as a drummer, as a keyboard player, as a composer, and I and I don't know what notes I play on the piano. Um, and whenever I'm recording or anything like that, I'm I'm very much using color as my source of inspiration. Because when you hear sounds, you yeah. see color. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have, uh, like I play a crash cymbal and I'll hear like three or four chords in that. And I'll go on a piano and I'll be like, that sounds like this is blue, here's orange, here's green. And that's how I like wrote Rain and like all my songs is yeah. based on what I hear. But the story behind that is purely based on when I was in a coma yeah, newsflash. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's talk about this. <laughs> so the synesthesia, I, I had it lightly when I was a kid. And I always used to be picked on when people go, oh, you're weird, dude. Like you're calling things blue and orange and turquoise and purple and stuff. And people thought I was like high or something. Like I don't, I don't do drugs. So, but like it's, I was just like, no, no, this sound sounds like blue and orange. And I never really understood it. But then when I was like 20 in my, in my 20s, I ended up doing a session and in a part of London that I wasn't really like, wasn't really safe, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then I got stabbed with a knife and it was, it was bad. Like I had the knife stuck in me here, right in my stomach here. And uh, I lost a lot of blood and I remember passing out. And then I woke up three months, three hours and 47 minutes later. Yeah. Wow, and I was out of my coma, and I woke up to music, and I woke up to Debussy. My mother realized that I always reacted to music when I was a kid, and I ended up waking up to Debussy because I was fascinated by classical music. That's why there's a lot of that influence in my music um, with the movements, and I woke up, and she was like, what? Like, it's crazy. And as I woke up, I, I could see color, like like visually I could see color I could never see it before um I could just like describe the colors of something when I was pre-stabbed right and it would just it just excelled and it was just a phen phenomenal experience and I couldn't walk so I couldn't play drums so it took me a while for my muscles and my body to like retrain to move again and uh I just spent time on a piano and I'd hear things like I heard birds singing or I hear like the wind and I just play music like it wasn't drum track related it was it was just music and I could realize I could compose about my environment so I used to like show my friends like this is a song about the birds singing and I was like oh here you go and then I ended up writing a song about birds singing which was Lotus like wow. on my fourth album, Synesthesia. Welcome to the show, Ronald Bruner Jr. <laughs> what was that four months with Prince? Uh, Prince is always somebody that, you know, any any guy wants to, you know, any musician wants to play with that because he, he was a musician that was a star, but he was a musician. I get a phone call from someone, and it wasn't him, but the phone call was, uh, are you available um, to leave tomorrow? To... to to go to Minnesota. Prince wants to play. Prince wants to, you know, do some play some music. I was like, yeah, I'm available. I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm down. It's like tomorrow. 
Cool. We have a car come pick you up. We, so we're hanging. So now we're starting to be social with Prince. Everything's going cool. We're social. And, you know, so Prince comes up on stage. He, you know, he sees everybody's warmed up. And Prince, you know, when he's on, when he's on stage with fellow musicians, he likes to, um, I'll speed it up. He likes no, to, okay, he, he, likes, he likes to uh, let you know that, like, he's one of you when he's in that energy. When, yeah. he's, when he's being a musician, he's not, when he's not being the dude jumping around on stage and doing splits off of pianos and, you know, and blah, 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 and he's not doing all that. He he's, he knows how to switch into the role of being a musician in a band. Like he he knows how to turn that on where it's not about the star. It's about how collectively we can do. So he turns into that guy, the Gemini turns into that guy. Now he's a buddy with us. Now we're on stage and we're like, like we're like in the garage and like we're about to start working on our new show for this thing we're doing on Friday for the high school. It's like talent. It's like that. Nice. So then he goes, he gets in the mic. He says, uh, he says, uh, RBJ, uh, do you know Stratus? And I looked at him and I was like, are you sure? Now, Stratus is Billy Cobb's. Yeah, of course. So you're telling this Billy Cobb kid you, phenomenon. You want me to go off. You want me to play. Stra- are you? And I said to him, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure, Prince? If he was alive, he, I, he remember. I said, are you sure? You sure? He was like, what do you mean? Am I sure? I said, are you sure? So he looked at me. He was like, okay. Now, mind you, he doesn't know that I can do that. He just thinks I'm this guy. Right. Man. We start the tune, and we play the tune. I play very nicely. I don't play anything, any, any frills. Just give it a good feel. Feel good. Playing a group. Just groove it. I just wanted to feel good. No yep. chops. So then we got we get to his section. He solos and you know and you know he solos and it gets and it, and it gets to that part. And I looked at him and I was like, I was like. <laughs> And I proceeded to knock, beat the dog shit. <laughs> I was knocking down cymbal stands. The drum set was crumbling. <laughs> I was beating them drums so hard. I mean, it was like, God, I was like, ah. And then we got to and then I had the double kick pedal. And it was all a problem then because it was like, and this was going so every you just heard like like imagine just just everybody in the neighborhood. I was playing drums for my life. I was playing drums that day. That that one moment, I was like, I am going to show you who I am. He took his guitar off and this note, he took the guitar and threw it in the air. And this dude came out of nowhere and caught it. <laughs> He's like, I swear to God. So this is the first time. So now he, now his reaction was, I do don't do get to don't all that, right? So he takes guitar and he's like, oh my God. And he goes, he throws the guitar and this dude comes out, catches it. He goes, I'll see you tomorrow, RBJ. Yes. That was the gig. Yes. Dude, he throw you the best bone pot. He didn't even realize it either. Could you do this? He was like, he was like can you do, uh, can you, you know Stratus? Can you play Stratus? I was like, are you sure? <laughs> you were like, I've been waiting my whole, whole life, life for this moment. Man, Dude, that was the, that was it. That was moment. the pinnacle. That was the moment. And then he said, I'll see you tomorrow. And I was like, wait, uh, what? And then, I, so then I was like, man, you know, I'm not like, I was like, how you gonna see me tomorrow? I don't, I don't know what's going on. So he's like, uh, I said, uh, I said, so I went, I'm like, man, I don't, I'm supposed to go back home. I got other gigs and stuff going on. Like, you know, and so I told, I told, I said, you know, you, you 
I told his sister, I said, you know, you had me sitting here for a week, man. You know, like, uh, what are we doing? I, and I didn't know Prince had had shows lined up. He had something he had to do. So he didn't, he don't tell you that. You just, you're, when you're with Prince, you're just with Prince. Whatever, yeah, yeah. whatever Prince does, you're just in it. Whatever, like if Prince feels like we're going to go over here and play it. He randomly, you know, whatever. So you, you got to be aware of that. So I, I, I was like, man, you know, like uh, Prince was standing on the other side of the room. He's going to the, the sound, the, the, the mixing council, whatever. And so the system came up. So Prince was, was uh, standing. He came back to the stage. And so Prince heard me. I was like, man, this is like, this is crazy. Like, I wasn't mad, but I was upset that, like, I had never been put in a situation where I was kind of like taking advantage of, like, you, you, you're just sitting there, like, a stupid, like, just waiting to find out what. So I kind of got a little funny. Like, I was yeah. like, man, you know, you know, uh, this is weird. You for felt me. a little disrespected. Yeah, I felt a little disrespected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Prince walks up and he goes, so he, he hears me talking to his sister and he walks up and he goes, uh, he said, uh, so he's listening to me. I'm like, man, you know, P. I'm like, and so I start directing it at him. P, like, you know, I, I know you're, I know you're super busy, and I, I'm, I'm so humbled and appreciate this opportunity, and I will be here for you. But man, like, you know, this has been. He's like, give me your account number, and I was like, what? Like, give, give your account number to what's your name? I was like, for real? <laughs> <laughs> I woke up that next morning with the most money I ever got paid. And a one-time thing. Yes. And I was like, I'm good. Yeah. I went to the Mall of America and blew that <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm live here with Stanley Randolph. Cheers, it's Stanley. Ch oh, yeah. You now played a 30-minute version of Giant Steps with Stevie Wonder as your yes. first time. You and him a duo. Yes. Man, I wish I, yes. I could be a fly on the wall for that. And then what? And then um, he told me, he was like, you know what, man? You got great groove. You got the gig. And, um, that's it. His, that's it. He had his um, he had his engineer to give me an iPod. I still have the iPod to this day with all of his songs on there. It had to be something like anywhere between three hundred to four hundred songs on there, bro. And he wow. said, "Learn as much as you can. We go on tour in two weeks." No way. Yep. And no. were you like, hell yeah? <laughs> Honestly, bro. <clears throat> and I know this is gonna sound crazy, but I didn't grow up. On Stevie Wonder, man. Really? No. Even being from Memphis and no, everything? No, I didn't. Like I knew I knew the typical songs that everybody knows, Superstition. like Superstition, Happy Birthday, uh, I Just Called to Say I Love You, you know? I, yeah, like, yeah, I knew yeah. those you records. You knew the hits. The yeah. hits. Yeah. Um, but Brandon, my brother, he was a Stevie Wonder fanatic, so much to the point to where it used to get on my nerves. Every time I get in the car <laughs> with him, he literally had a, you know, this is back when they had CDs. So he had the CD book. It had every... Stevie Wonder album that he's ever done, every single, all on CDs. So, like, you know, he, he played a lot of Stevie Wonder's music. It was crazy. He would play the stuff so much. Um, I wasn't really, like, paying attention, paying attention. Yeah. I knew it was great. It was great music, you know. But I wasn't paying attention. Paying, I was more into... I was heavily on Dave Wuckel and Vinny and, yeah. and Steve Gadd and you stuff You were like deep that. in the fusion. You know what I'm saying? You I was deep, deep in the fusion. Deep I remember into that, that yeah. bro. So, like, I wasn't really listening to soul and funk. And yeah. Stuff like, and even my mom, bro. Like, my mom listened to Anita Baker and Tony Braxton and people like that. So, we didn't have any Stevie Wonder music in the crib. So, yeah, when I got the gig, I called Brandon ASAP and was like, bro, I just, you know. And, and people are going to be, like, you know, surprised. But I wasn't, like... Yeah. Blown away. I was just like, man, yeah. okay, I got all this music to learn. <laughs> you know I got to go to work. I, yeah. Like, I know this is a, a great gig to have. And, like, my brother would be shitting bricks right now if he knew yeah. what I was doing, you know. So, you know, I hit up Brandon ASAP and was like, bro, I need your help. 
Like, I just need you to walk me through. And I know you play this music all the time, and I should have been listening, paying attention, but I wasn't. But I need you to walk <laughs> me through it right now. Yeah. Like, you know, like the whole vibe. And you know, I, I got the gig, so I, I need help learning this stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. I remember I went on a tour, and uh, I didn't know everything. But what's crazy is even on the DVD, a lot of those records we play, bro, once I really, really um, understood what seat I was in, and I went back to listen to the originals. Luckily, some of the patterns I played were, you know, 90% right. Just by intuition? By intuition, bro. Yeah. And I really think it's from me sitting in the car with my brother and subconsciously taking that music in. 100% all you those know? years. All those years, yeah. So, um, yeah, luckily, because on the DVD, that was probably like my first month there. Literally, we had just... Started the tour and went straight to London and recorded a DVD. The thing I learned from Stevie, if you listen to his records, bro, his records are not perfect. Even though we listen to it and it's a masterpiece and it's art. Yeah. You know, if, you, if, if you're trying to be the perfect drummer, he wasn't the perfect drummer. Right. But it was all feel and soul and, you know what I'm saying? And, of course, him being able not to really see and he has to guess what he's hitting. Yeah. There's a lot of flubs and stuff in there. You know? Yeah. So I understand when he told me, like, yo, if you're going to play it wrong, play it loud and wrong. You know what I'm saying? Because he's, he's played confident. it loud and wrong on albums for years. And you know it's the saying? perfect and feel. And it's the perfect feel. Yeah. It's all about, you know, it's it coming from the heart and from the soul. And, and you know. So, I mean, like I said, that's still one of my biggest lessons I live live by to this day. Plenty of times I've, um, you know, messed up. Uh, you know, like I probably didn't touch the drums for two, three weeks. And then I get on and I'm a little rusty or whatever. But even in that, you know, listening back to me play or whatever, it's like, yo, it's still magic in that. You know what I'm saying? So so I, I, I live by that whole that whole rule. If you're going to play it wrong, play it loud and wrong. Yeah, because... You can put that into anything in life. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Adam Arrigo. He's Hi there. the co-founder and CEO of Wave XR. Wave is the leading metaverse concert company. If you saw any of the crazy metaverse... Concerts with uh, the weekend, Justin Bieber, and most recently Calvin Harris. Just a few days ago, that was that was this guy. I would say if you're a musician, um, as I said, you don't have to jump in right now. But I think familiarizing yourself with um, video game engines like Unity and Unreal, or some of the platforms that kids are currently using. Because remember, like it's not going to happen overnight. Like right now, a lot of young people are like living their lives in Roblox and Minecraft. But they're starting to get older and becoming like sort of the consumers of tomorrow that are going to get jobs and have money. And meanwhile, all the technology is developing. You know, Meta is releasing new headsets. A bunch of new other big companies are jumping in. So there's going to be a convergence over the next like three to five years where this is going to be a real market. And you're already starting to see some artists going into Roblox and making a living. Or um, in the same way that TikTok, like spawned big artists mm. like you know Lil Nas X and, and and others so like you can have a first mover advantage if you go onto these platforms and find a friend that like kind of understands video games this is all video games by the way like there's all this hype around the metaverse and web 3 and whatever like for me the metaverse is just gaming it's all video games yeah because it's been happening like since World of Warcraft and MMOs and guilds and it's like people are modeling social behaviors in these spaces and culture is happening and increasingly so now but it's still on a trajectory to happen. It hasn't happened yet. So this is a great time to like download Roblox. Like it's going to be a weird experience for you if you're not a gamer, um, especially if you're over the age of 12. But um, just try to understand how some of these like experiences are getting more popular. 
And then, yeah, if you find a friend that can develop for any type of gaming engine, whether it's one of the, you know, complex ones like Unreal, or it's just the, the level creator in Roblox, which is like a scripting language, um, though that technology is going to get easier and easier and easier, especially with the advent of AI, mm. um, which is going to actually kind of remove the need for needing any game development shops whatsoever. If you guys have seen Dolly 2 or ChatGPT, like, you can now generate a photo just using text and it looks really, really good. So the same is going to be true for building 3D content like in Roblox and Fortnite and in our platform. So it might be as easy for you to um, just use text to describe the thing you want to build. And that's going to happen like in the next five years. So start familiarizing yourself with these spaces. Um, you know, we are building the definitive venue and platform for musicians. And so you know, we're going to be releasing a toolkit that makes it really easy for musicians that doesn't, that don't necessarily have any coding chops to express themselves in this way. And then if you want to do something more advanced, like there's a layer that requires more technical know-how, but like, this is such a good time. And I feel like right now, um, the people that are start to learn this space and this tech are, they're going to be like the next, like Lil Nas X or like the next Doja Cat. And all of a sudden this use case presents itself, whether it's a global pandemic where you're like, oh, wait, it makes sense for us to be uh, in the metaverse and for us to sit at home and watch a concert that is this and I can see it and I can communicate to my friends where yeah. before COVID you'd be like, but why am I going to do that? I don't need to. I could just go see Travis Scott or Calvin Harris when they play. But now it's like, oh, and then you realize and then it goes deeper and deeper into it and these more and more use cases come out of it and you're like, okay, now I see. And then now we are in a concert world again and yet these virtual shows are still happening and they're going to be continually evolving. Well, you're touching on a larger point, which I think is an interesting parallel between entrepreneurship and being a musician, which I feel like I learned a lot uh, from the latter to succeed at the former, which is like back to the idea of hype bu bubbles. There are trend setters and there are trend chasers. And yeah. it's, sometimes it's hard to distinguish between the two. Um, you know, mm. Harmonix, Roblox, like Roblox was a, you know, is now worth tens of billions of dollars. They were around for over 10 years building out the foundation of that tech. And now that it's kind of coming to fruition, they hit an inflection point where they figured it out and 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 now it's it, it's working. Like mm. tons and tons of kids are socializing in these 3D spaces. I mean, I think that platform, you know, in addition to Fortnite, VR chat, like that is the metaverse right now, like yeah. Second Life. And when you're a musician, sometimes it's hard to sort of have an original vision and be like, this is my sound, I'm sticking to it when it's not popular. Yeah. You know, those artists that have to, that are slaving away for 10 years and they're like, this is my sound. I, f I refuse to adapt to something that's more commercial. For sure. I'm not going to use drum machines or electronic beats. And, um, but the way that I think both pop music and technology go is that by the time something gets popular, like it is on trend, it's already too late. Like that's when everyone rushes in, whether it's yeah. a, a subset of dance music or when I was in a band in Boston, it was just like, you know, the strokes were really popular and there was a very specific style of eighth note downstroke guitar. Yep. By the time that hit all of the bands in Boston, like we were all trying to copy that sound. But then by the time we started playing shows, everyone sounded the same. And so yeah. how do you be original and sort of have the gall to stick to it for a long time and wait for that moment? Cause yeah. it's hard. And then also sometimes that moment never comes and you're just like, maybe I should have given in. I should have like sold out. That's why, well, luck is preparation means opportunity, right? So you got to be prepared. That's what you can actually control. Yeah. So only go after what you can control and manage that. So you doing you and you sticking to your vision and working hard on something and also 
push on yourself, keep asking yourself why to make sure that what you're working on is even something that you're excited about. Yeah. Genuinely. It's right. True. Cause no. it's not, you're not going to get through the tough times as an entrepreneur or a musician. If you're not passionate about what you're doing. Uh, she is the CEO of splice. She has an incredible background uh, in tech and community products. So let's make a ton of noise for <laughs> Cockle Srivastava. <laughs> so you were already on the board of Splice. And then how did you get the gig of becoming CEO of Splice? Um, well, so Steve had reached out to me to have Steve Martoshi. Steve Martoshi, who uh, is the founder and was the CEO at the time. Um, he reached out to me to have me join the company in some way. I was like, oh, that doesn't make sense. I really love what I'm doing at Adobe. Um, I've got a big team here, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, some time later, I was like, I'm thinking about leaving uh, Adobe. And I just like, I got to let Steve know just because he should know. And he's like, wait, wait, you're leaving Adobe and you haven't <laughs> talked to us yet. Um, and we talked a lot about what, what the right role would be. And ultimately he and the board asked me to join as CEO. And wow. that was a really big responsibility. Um, but I feel incredibly grateful and proud that they trusted me with this important role. Sometimes a really small group of people can do extraordinary things. Yeah. Um, my first experience with this was when I was at Flickr. I think we were like seven... 10 people. Wow. And we were running a site that was reaching a hundred million users. I mean, it was, it was really extraordinary. And, um, at that time we, I mean, at least in my mind, I was learning, I was, I was just absorbing everything. And it was a lot about what does it mean to be a super team? Yep. And I have tried to replicate that idea over and over and over again. And that's what I'm trying to build here at Splice. So, it's not about having a big team. Um, it's having, it's about having the right group of people who are, um, motivated by a big mission. And then you just try to take all the obstacles out of their way. Mm. Um, and, and that's what we're doing. So that's one thing. It doesn't have to be a big wow. team, but if you do have, and even, that, you know, 10, 15 years later, whatever, it's all, it's really the same strategies can be used. Oh, I mean, it's, it's human nature. Yeah, you, yeah. you know this, yeah, you yeah, know yeah. this. It's human nature all, over and over and over again. Just simply removing obstacles can do a lot. It's a lot, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's hard to find them. And yeah. sometimes it's not easy to know what's coming in the way. Sometimes it's cultural stuff. One of the things that um, I noticed at Splice, and we talk about it a lot, is, um, in fact, it came out of my listening tour. Yeah, I was like, we have ghosts here. Mm. You know, we have behaviors that were learned based on how people behaved who are no longer working here. Wow. But those imprints of those behaviors, those imprints of, well, product does it this way and they always do it this way or engineering always does it this way. Those ghosts exist, but those people who created those negative behaviors are long gone. So how do we kill the ghosts? And we talk about that all the time. And, wow. we, and, we, and we'll be talking about something like, and someone will say, oh, well, product did blah, blah, blah. Like, did they really? Or is that a ghost? And we have that conversation and it makes it. And so sometimes these obstacles can be things you can't see. That's got to be really empowering to the still current employees. Yeah, too. because we, we, can, we can challenge yeah. some of these cultural imprints that are not healthy for us. Where is the state of AI today? Where do you think it'll be in one year? Mm. And then where do you think it'll be in five years? Yeah. Um, so I think, I think AI is super interesting. I think there's a lot of really 
fun things that can happen with it. I think it could be a really powerful tool in the hands of artists. But I think that's the important thing is the artists have to put their hands on it. Yeah. And, you know, we talk, I was talking about empathy earlier. I think there's, especially being the CEO of Splice, I think there's a divide between mm. musicians and technologists. Yes. Um, because both work at my company. And um, sometimes there's a lot of misconceptions, right? Like tech is too complicated. It's too hard. Certainly for me, looking at Ableton or Logic or any of these tools, I was like, wow, this is really hard. Yeah. And so there's a sense of, that's not really for me. Yes. You know, I, I didn't do math. I don't do science. I'm a musician. I'm an artist. He's doing a lot right now. You know him from his work with her, Anderson Pack, Miss Lauren Hill, Mac Miller, J. Cole. There's a lot of artists. We're going to talk all about it. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Giddy. How does the Lauren Hill gig come up? Exactly right. So when I came, when I graduated from Berkeley, um, um, I came back and honestly, I was came right back home lived in the same room with my parents, and honestly went back to playing with the same band. So I was rehearsing with with a band um, that I was playing in high school, and I got a call on my cell phone. I just got a cell phone. I mean, and it was from a number, and it was one of my friends from school. Now, it wasn't one of the most popular kids, so I was like, okay, I'll call him right back. It's fine. I'll call him back. And so I... Like we we finished the rehearsal set, and we were gonna do another like little run the set again. All right, everybody go to the bathroom. Use bathroom break. So I went to the bathroom and I checked the um, message, and he was like, "Bro, pick up, pick up. I'm I'm in Boston. Lauren Hill is having auditions, and she asked me if I know any guitar players. I'm only recommending you. Call me back." And I'm like, "What?" So I'm like, "Yo," he said, "Come here right now. Come to Boston right now. I'm in New Haven, Connecticut." I'm like. Okay, I'm on my way. So I literally get in rehearsal. I'm like, guys, um, I got to go. I, I got to go right now to audition for Lauren Hill. So I drove. I got on the car. I already had the guitar. I drove straight to Boston. It was maybe a three-hour drive. I got to the studio, and it was myself and a couple other people, and the audition began. And so we started recording, writing, and before you know it, that was maybe like 6 p.m., Recorded all night in the studio till maybe eleven a.m. That was the audition was recorded. Wasn't even. I mean, the audition maybe yeah. lasted maybe the first twenty minutes. She came. She said, "Do you know how to play flamenco?" And I, I I'm not a really flamenco player, but I had chops to fucking fake it, and I yeah. did it. She was like, "Oh," and that was it. It was literally. It was like maybe fifteen seconds, and that's and a curveball too. No, You're not thinking was, yeah. Lauren Hill's going to be like, "Can you play flamenco?" I remember thinking after it, like coming back and almost being like. I mean, some of the band, the singers who were with her for a while, they were kind of bullying me. I was the youngest one, you know what I'm saying? And they were kind of bullying me, like, a little bit, I felt, you know what I'm saying? And, like, I came back being like, oh, like, this is just, this was a weird, this wasn't the dream gig, I, like, what? Yeah. So I remember being, thinking, like, okay, if this is what the business is, either I just give up now and do something else or fuck it. I keep going. Yeah. And I remember having to think that and been like, okay, keep going. Now that was technically one of the, the worst situations. So I'm glad that my, my first experience in the business was, was not great. You Very know what difficult. I mean? Because yeah. it really helped set the tone and, and like this the is expectation, be hard. like the yeah, expectation yeah. of what this yeah. shit is. Luckily 
it does get better and it does get easier. <laughs> I, so I'm glad I made that decision. But yeah. in some ways, it really conditioned me to, to, yeah, I call it having like a spiritual shield around you. Alicia Keys was next. And then the rest of my life began. This yeah, is this crazy that, story. Right? So this really, I didn't know what the, I didn't know what to do. I came back. I was, you know, I was just like confused, a little traumatized, a little broken. Like, okay, what do I do now? Like, do I keep doing this? And then so this story literally changed my life and literally is why where i am today um i was living back with my parents um i would just say yes to everything i'm just anybody that had any any anything i'll do a gig right and so um there was there was this um group of they were like dentists or doctors from like they and they they weren't real professional musicians they were just like you know what we call weekend warriors right yeah. so they really weren't great musicians they were just you know, just, oh, let's have some fun on the weekend, and they were a horn section. Now, trumpet and violin are the two instruments. Like, you might not have played piano for 20 years, but if you walk up to it, you could just get a touch, like, and get a sound and remember something. Same with drums. Trumpet and violin, if you don't really play that shit, you're going to sound horrible. So let me tell you, this horn section, bro, oh, my God, they were so bad. Here I'm coming right off of the road in London playing with Lauryn Hill, and, like, now I'm like playing in this band of like with the worst sounding like and they're trying to do like Tower of Power, Earth Wind and Fire. They're trying to do like Shining Star, like real intricate horn shit, and they they sound like doo doo. And I'm like in re in rehearsal, like why what like why am I doing this? Like this sounds horrible. This is not a good look for me, and this is not enjoyable. So we go home. They're like, yeah, we'll see you tomorrow at the session. And I'm like, I go home and and. Um, my girlfriend at the time, the night of, like, the session starts at, like, 7 p.m. And it's, like, 6. And I'm, like, oh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I changed my mind. This is this is below me. Yeah. Like, I am tired. They don't even have the money. I'm, like, they're paying me in pizza. Like, they're getting pizza. Like, what? Like, this is crazy. I just got back from London. This is nuts. Like, why am I doing this? She was, like, listen, you committed to it. Be a man of your word. Go and do it. And the better you do, the quicker you get the fuck out of there. Yeah. Like, bet. You're right. You're right. I'll do that. And so, in wanting to, like, be a man of my word, I went. And um, I'm setting up. I'm playing guitar, like, in the room, getting the sound before we start. And um, through the glass, I see somebody walking in. This is in the middle of West Haven, Connecticut, in the middle of nowhere. I see somebody walking through, and I'm like, oh, that looks like Bobby Brown. And I'm like, oh, that is Bobby Brown. And then so I started playing some and then he's walking. He stops and I see him through the glass. Look at me. And I'm like playing. And then he starts talking to the engineer like and they're like pointing at me. And all of a sudden I hear on the loudspeaker. Hey, uh, Jeff, can you come on in the uh, in the control room, please? So I come in and Bobby Brown's like, oh, I heard you play over there. Like you sound amazing. I'm recording downstairs. Uh, maybe when you're done with this session, you could come and lay something down. I'm like, sick. So now I'm pumped. Yeah. Finish the session. It's like midnight. I go downstairs. We're hanging. He was basically there in West Haven, Connecticut, because he was in rehab down the street. And so he was like around people that like cared about him. He wasn't, you know what I mean? He wasn't using, wasn't drinking. And so we're, 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 um, making they're making music down downstairs and i'm like they're like yo can you play on guitar on, on a track we're working on so i play guitar on the track and he loves it. he's like man you're amazing i have a 
gig next Thursday at Toad Splice, which was the Connecticut venue. I, I have the whole band. I just don't have a guitar player. Can you, would you join me? I'm like, yo, this night is working out amazing. <laughs> like, okay. So he's like, okay, cool. I'm going to put you in touch with everybody next Thursday, but we're going to do a rehearsal. Cool. So then I get hit up and um, they're like, okay, there's a, we're rehearsing in New York City. So I go to New York City and it's an all-star New York City band that's playing the show besides, you know, besides me. I'm the yeah. only one not from New York. And so um, the bass player is this guy by the name of uh, Steve Rodriguez but goes by Steve Styles, And um, we meet, we connect, we do this Bobby Brown gig, um, uh, become friends. And then Bobby has like a little run. We do uh, like the Tom Joyner Cruise. And so we become friends through it. And then he at the time was playing with Alicia Keys. And so he was like, yo, I think there might be like a, a switching of chairs. I want to introduce you to the musical director, um, Andre Gill. Um, to to see maybe you know you guys could connect because he might be looking for a guitar player mm. and I'm like what so I meet Andre we really connect by the way shout out to Andre Gill is one of my uh, mentors as what well, you know as the story progresses you'll see he's one of the people that really took a chance on me and and did some of the most for me um, in this business than anybody has and it's, I consider my brother and I learned just so much from and so anyway shout out to Andre Gill but yeah so I connect with Andre and then he said listen I. There's a show we're doing um, with Alicia. I want you to do it, you know. And so it was, I remember it was 2006. And um, I was like, yo, bet. So he sends me the music to learn. And so I'm like, oh, interesting set. Cool. I, I love these songs. And I'm like, yo, we're doing a bunch of David Bowie songs. This is dope. I love, I'm obsessed with Bowie. So yeah, this is easy. And then I'm like, I get the call sheet, and it says a uh, band arrived, band set up, Mr. Bowie arrives. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, wait, 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 hold up. What does that say? Mr. Bowie arrived. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to be playing with David Bowie. So my first gig with Alicia was, is a benefit concert, uh, Black Ball, that she um, uh, started uh, in order to fundraise money for, um, I believe it was, it was ch children with AIDS in Africa. Mm -hmm. um, so the, And so um, David Bowie... Uh, it was somebody else, uh, uh, Damian Marley. Um, and so, yeah, I start my journey with Alicia with that one show. And, and so um, I remember meeting Alicia because I, I knew who Alicia's manager was, this guy by the name of Jeff Robinson. I remember meeting him after the show, after I did well. I was like, okay, wow, I did it. Like my first show with Alicia, with David Bowie, all these people, and like maybe I'll get in the band, maybe they like me, maybe I'll actually, nobody promised me anything, so maybe this will lead to a permanent position, right? And so I remember walking up to Jeff Robinson and be like, I know who you are, like I, 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 I love, you know, I respect your work, like so honored. I mean, he was like, yeah, maybe we'll have you, maybe we'll have you join the band. Okay, so that was a very <laughs> important interaction for me. Yeah. Um. So then I ended up joining the band a year later. Ladies and gentlemen, we're live with Mark Juliana. You got to do the last David Bowie album, Black Star. Unbelievable. Um, I have so many questions about that. But I also, I think it, it ties into like, because I feel like you on St. Vincent was you doing St. Vincent. And I feel like you doing David Bowie was David Bowie working with you, mm. where it, it was still like, drum and bass or it was like it felt like your electronica kind of vibe and like not just like straight you know omar hakeem bowie rhythms or anything like that right. it was very much stylized still mm -hmm. for you so 
how did you get the gig with Bowie? What was it like working with Bowie? Let's talk, let's talk for a minute. Yeah. Um, so let's see. It all started from his relationship with this woman named Maria Schneider, who's an amazing composer, arranger in New York. And she has this incredible kind of like a big band, but it's not traditional jazz in any way. But he was a fan of hers. And I think he just approached her like, hey, could could we want to work on something together? So they had this one song and uh, there was something in the song that reminded her of me or something. Um, and she called me and said, Hey, I'm working on the song with David Bowie. Would you want to do it? I, and I said, yes. And then, <laughs> and then, um, and then, so we sure. did that one song. So it was me uh, playing with her band. You know, we did a day at um, Avatar in New York and he was there and he was great. But we did a couple of rehearsals first. And um, what was that like? Even there, like the initial meeting and collabing with him. Oh, it was incredible. So, well, let's see. Okay, uh, she brought him to the fifty-five bar to hear us, which Perfect. is which is wild. First, so there's like, before you met him, yeah. So he got to see you play first, yeah. So, so ideal situation. Yeah. Well, it, that was the thing. It was like you're you're not wrong in that. Um, it was like, because he hired us as a band. Yeah. It's it's Donnie McCaslin playing saxophone, Jason Lindner playing keys, Tim LaFave playing bass, and myself. We had been playing, we made a couple records under Donnie's name. Yep. I had been Love placing, those albums. Everyone listen to those. Thank you. I had been playing with Jason and Tim in like different versions of beat music for years. So we all had a long relationship. And he hired us as a band, so... Yeah, you're you're correct in saying that like he was the new guy, which is kind of <laughs> trippy, you know. Um, Amazing. But yeah, that first track because Donnie was in Maria's band, so mm. the, those first rehearsals. What's that rehearsal space on like Twenty Seventh Street? Uh, Euphoria. Yeah. I don't know if you know. It's a normal little rehearsal space, and it was like David and Tony Visconti, um, who was producing the yep. track, and then. Maria is basically the rhythm section and then like saxophone and trombone just to start. Maria hadn't yet done the full arrangement. So it was to like work out ideas and he was just so kind and it was quite normal and all these things, you know, he was there early and left late and was like, Hey, can you run that section again? I just want to record it so I could, you know, write to it at home or work on it at home. Just all about the music, you know, and super kind. Wow. And uh, yeah, so that day in the studio was great. And then um, I think it was even Maria's idea. I think he wanted to do more stuff with her. And and she said, you should just do a record with those guys. And I was like, okay. So um, he had reached out to Donnie. Donnie, you know, after they met at that session, that was he started sending him music. And then we started making the record. You know, that was at the Magic Shop in New York, which is now closed. But we did like three one-week sessions. Mm. And uh, it was amazing. But yeah, he really encouraged us to like do our thing. And yeah. and on several occasions would reference like, hey, I love it. on that beat music. You know, we made this weird record like eight years ago, the, the Los Angeles Improvisations. Jeff Babco. Tim, myself, and Troy Ziegler. And we just improvised, and I... I saw you do that at Blue Whale. Okay, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. 
So he would reference that record. He'd be like, oh, yeah, I really love what you did here. Maybe you could try stuff like that. It's like, oh, my God, David Bowie's sitting at home, like, listening to this record, you know. Um, so, so many that, incredible things yeah, happening. Yeah. yeah. So it was, um, it really would, felt super comfortable and intuitive. And I think, you know, some people were like, you know, a, many people were asking, like, were you nervous and it's like maybe there were like flashes of that, but yeah. any time there was a moment of like, holy shit, this is a David Bowie record, I would look out and it's like Tim, Jason, Don, Tim say, telling some dumb joke to like, you know, and it's just like, oh, I'm with my homies. It's your family. Yeah. yeah. And and then that's David Bowie over there. And then the you new know? guy. Yeah. <laughs> He's doing pretty uh, good. But, you know, when you, I'm no expert on his, on his career, but when you look back, like he, that's not um it's pretty consistent with like the young americans era it's mm. like hires this like sick band that's already kind of a community and he inserts himself into that to writes new songs and gives that that thing and then kind of the let's dance thing and then the yeah. this and the you know he when he would jump around it would be uh it's not so inconsistent with what we did and i think the whole point like Tony Visconti had a funny, kind of a funny line that I read in an interview. He was like, yeah, our idea for this record was instead of hiring rock guys to play jazz, we hired some jazz guys to play rock. <laughs> and that's, you know, obviously oversimplified, but also that's kind of cool, you know. Oh, it's so cool. And that must have felt so validating because he loves you for your creative self and your music. It was a, a huge license that also alleviated any pressure. It's like, exactly. no, just do your thing. It's exactly. Like, and he was like egging us on. I remember a couple of times, you know, all the songs had demos with just like program parts. And I would try to be true to the demo, honor his ideas. And we would do a take and be like, okay, cool. But like, go. He even, <laughs> he even said one time, he was like, Mark, I know what you're capable of. You know, something like that. Amazing. So kind of like literally you know egging us on yeah. and being like no go go do you because that 55 bar gig was like we were just throwing down playing too loud and too much and so it was that was really fun amazing dude yeah sima funk yes sir how's it going brother I'm good, man. How are you? Super nice, man. Happy to see you, brother. How does the industry like in Cuba? Is there much of an it's, industry? It's hundred percent not a scene. Yeah, it's, it's, we can We have to. We we need to have a couple hours here for for me to tell you how 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 it works when I was like making my my first album release there. But it's different. The people just find a way to find to make their own distribution of music to make their own way yeah. to produce music. I produced my first album in my room in the house. And I mix most. I mix with couple mixer friends of mine that that help me with that. And I distribute in a, in a different way, completely different. That it's another way of, of send music to every house. Yeah, that called El Paquete. <coughs> and, and yeah, it's completely different. It's another kind of of uh, invention. It's great, a great invention. It works hundred percent. It's like analogic internet. Yeah, yeah. You share the information through the hands. You got many people. Send giving you information every week, the things that you need, and you got all the lists, a, cura a curator of music, all the hits in Cuba and stuff. It's a, it's a really crazy stuff, but it works. What was it like working with George Clinton? A crazy experience, man. A magical experience. The Funkadelics experience. Yeah. For real. He, he, he just say yes, 
I want to do the song with Sima. And I didn't send him the song. Actually, Colin sent me all the music. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, I want to do it. Nice. And, and we fly, we take a flight to, to Nashville, to to his another place that he lived. Tallahassee. Uh, Tallahassee, no? Yeah. Tallahassee, yeah. yeah. To Tallahassee. And then we just arrived there. We was in the studio waiting for him. And super nervous, you know. Yeah. I'm a jersey. I'm a big fan of. Yeah. It's, it's more than a fan. I'm, I'm more than a fan of your. And then we was waiting outside like yeah, just ten, eleven. And then we start to hear a speaker sound like some really, really acid uh, rap, hip hop, funk. So start so George arrived in this white car with our roof, with his clothes, and uh, his wife that she's a beautiful person also. And they just get down to the castle. Yo, my man, what's up, bro? He's like, yeah, thank you, bro. Sima, let's go to the studio. We would spend the whole day recording in the studio with our headphones. We was just recording the voice live in the microphone and just talking about Cuban music and about Afro-Cuban groove. Yeah. Man, he's a big fan. He was telling me his story when he was a, uh, he was a barber in, in a barber shop in New York and he was listening to Perez Prado and all the music that, wow. uh, all the Afro-Cuban music that arrived in New York that changed at some point, many of the groups that is happening now in the States. So he was, it was, it was a really crazy story with him because all the time was like music back with knowledge, yeah. with passion, with, with that scene that sometimes you've seen that, that it's not longer important, but it's the most important. For sure. You know, that is the spirit and the, and the connection with, yeah. the, with the happiness and the healthy. And he's still, he's still there. He's the, he got that and he spread that all the time, yeah. 100%. Ladies and gentlemen, Isaiah Sharkey. What's up? So you're very known for playing with D'Angelo and playing with John Mayer. Yeah. Um, so did playing with them rub off on you in terms of your growth as a songwriter? Absolutely. Um, I was a fan of D'Angelo since I was probably 10 years old. Yeah. You know, and so... I, then I was listening a lot more to his, the, just the music, you know, just the groove and trying to check out who's playing on the albums. And then once I had to start kind of like playing and singing a little background with him, I had to yeah. learn the words and um, checking out the lyrics and stuff like that. And then, of course, uh, John Mayer, he's a great songwriter. I, you know, I, I um, think that he's like like a Paul Simon to me, you know, with his, with his writing. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, a lot of their songwriting rubbed off on me. A lot of their approach rubbed off on me. And, uh, I, and, and everybody else that I've ever worked with, I think, you know, all of the experiences help kind of put uh, a gumbo together. How did you get the gig with D'Angelo? Um, I was doing a gospel session in Richmond, Virginia, back in probably like 2017, 2018. And uh, in in the gospel arena, they they like to do a lot of like whenever they do a live recording, they tend to do a live DVD recording too, or at that time DVD. And um, so they wanted us to dress a certain way, but they told us what we had to wear, you know, in the middle of the week during the rehearsal. So me and my guys, we were trying to find some place to get, you know, some some gear to wear. And so there was like a little strip mall. And uh, the clothing store, Walmart, and then like a mom and pop music store. And so being musicians, we're going to check out the music store of course. first. Of course. So yeah. we go to the music store. We're messing around. And uh, this guy walks out from the back of the store that, 
you know, it was a door that had like that said guitar lessons. So he walks out. It's a little heavy, and he had a guy walking with him carrying his his case. And I look. I said, you know, I'm being you know a jokester. I'm like, it's a, look a fake ass D'Angelo. <laughs> oh God! You know, who's this guy look alike cat? Now I I didn't think I didn't study into at the time. I didn't study in Google like D'Angelo. You know. Um, but I knew all the records and I yeah. knew who played on what, you know. Um, and uh, so I didn't know he was from Richmond. So I'm like, wait a minute, that that's, he looks a lot like him. So I went out of the store and I said, I don't mean to bother you. Are you D'Angelo? He's like, yeah. He's hesitant. He's like, yeah, I am. And I told him I knew Spanky. And I told him I you know, love his music, obviously. Thank you for your music. And that was it. Yeah. And he was like, I was just thinking about Spanky in the store and man, I, I was taking lessons in the back and I was talking about him and I, I felt like I felt his presence or his spirit because he had passed on by then. Yeah, yeah. It's like, but I heard some guitar playing and it reminded me of him. Was that you playing in the store? I said, yeah. So we go back in the store and I started playing. He's like, give me your number. No way. And then he got my number. Now what's funny is um, he got the wrong number. He put the wrong number in his phone. And so I was like freaking out. Called my brothers, like, "Yo, D'Angelo hit me!" You know, he, he wants me to. He wa- he wanted my number. I get home, maybe two weeks pass, nothing. And then I get a call from the store in Richmond, no. and they said that he came back to the store to get my number. No way! Yeah, he really wanted to find you. He came back to the store and asked for for my number if if it, somebody can get in touch with me. And so they got it. Somebody at the store knew somebody that was in the band. Got and got my number, and then he called me, and then asked me to be a part of his band, and that's how it started. So you literally stumbled into D'Angelo's local music store in Richmond, in Richmond, Virginia, mm-hmm. where he happened to be taking guitar lessons. Yep. And he heard you play. Mm-hmm. Thought someone sounded like Spanky. Mm-hmm. Yep. Got your number. Got it wrong. Wanted to reach out to you so bad that he called the store yeah. to to get dude. That's fate. Yeah, it is. It's it's divine because you know even before that, um, I had met Spanky, um, probably two years, three years prior, and me and him hit it off really well. From time for three, Nick Kendall. Classical music and the system and the business does have structure that you have to work within. Is good to some res- to some respect, but. Sometimes it becomes stifling. And um, I think, again, it's it can be very judgmental, um, very clicky. Um, it's also the, the fact that these, and a lot of people don't realize this, but the biggest orchestras in the States um, are nonprofits. So, I, did not, I did not know that. Yes. So... This is a nonprofit institution. The mm-hmm. idea of orchestras, very much kind of like the museum or the library. It's the board who supports, puts millions of dollars into these institutions to enrich the community. Mm. So all the philharmonics and everything? Are, are all nonprofits. Wow. And so it's a beautiful thing i mean it's really wonderful because who starts these nonprofits? is it like a museum is it a government no it's the board it's a a board comes together board comes together and they all donate i mean you know these family foundations that have to give away money anyway yeah yeah yeah. 
they want they'll give it to the museum they'll give it to the boys and girls club they'll give it to the local whatever they love and the symphony if they if they enjoy that or value that yeah in our history the change really needs to happen from the board level and it is because those have also been very exclusive right generally speaking white Rich white people, older males probably, and just across the board. Yeah, yeah. I um, mean, that's just that's just how it's been. It's not bad that it's been that way. It's just how it's been. It is how it is. Yeah. And it, because it's a European, this is a European art form, the classical music, right? Um, and so in the states, the boards have not been diversified. Mm. They haven't been open to it or know to be open to it. And now everybody realizes that if you're really calling yourself a community center like an orchestra is a nonprofit, then we have to act like it and we have to look like it. So from the board level, we're seeing change happen, which means Amazing. that the staff is starting to look different. Yeah. That the local communities are now, you see people of color now on stage yeah. so that the local schools, inner city kids now don't only see a certain kind of face, they see, they recognize themselves and they Amazing. say, I never thought of playing the violin before, but that's so cool yeah. that my girl Ty Murray is up there playing and maybe I can do that. Yeah, I can do it. She, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, that's, there's a lot of stuff that needs to change, but that's something fundamental that's happening right now. We have an incredible guest for you today, and his name is Austin Butner. Austin was the deputy mayor of the city of Los Angeles. He was the CEO of LA Times. And he was the superintendent of the Los Angeles Unified School District, which is the largest school district in California and the second largest in our country. He is also the author and creator of Proposition 28. So what is Proposition 28? Proposition 28 provides the funding for schools to make sure everyone, each and every one of the 6 million kids in California public schools can participate in arts and music at schools. Now, why does that matter? I don't, I don't know what I need to tell you, but we all have our story of arts, right? Yeah. Mine's a, a kid who changed elementary schools a bunch. As a young child, my family, my parents took different jobs. Coming to a new school in the middle of fifth grade, did not know a soul. My concern that day was not literacy or math. It was, who was I going to lunch with? I didn't know anybody. Fortunately, I was invited to a music class. Teacher handed me a cello. Cello became bass. Bass became guitar. I could play in front of thousands of people before I can speak in front of tens of people. Yeah. But it all started with that sense of belonging, that sense of agency, a group being part of something. And that's my story. And you have your story. And all of us have a story on how the art has made us whole as people, has helped provide the glue uh, to our education. Uh, but sadly, in the state of California, barely one in five kids have had the chance to participate in arts and music at schools. Wow. So we solved the problem. Sometimes to solve a problem, you need to make it a little bit bigger. Yeah. So we went directly to the voters in the state of California and said, listen, we can take money the state already has, no new taxes, and we're going to dedicate a billion dollars a year to make sure every kid can participate. We'll hire about 15,000 teachers statewide, and every school is going to have arts and music, and every kid has a chance to participate in whether it's the cello that I found in fifth grade in that group, uh, your journey on drums and music, uh, art, dance, animation, theater. Everybody's got a chance to participate. We're all in, and we know it's going to do great things for kids in California. If you don't know, School Gig is uh, a brand new platform that Jamcard built in conjunction with Proposition Twenty Eight uh, to make sure we built it correctly and hit all the all the right things. And so, if you are an artist and you are interested in becoming a teacher, you can go to schoolgig.us and create an account for free and see the jobs that are there. So you can build your profile out, 
say your level of education, um, the subjects that you'd be interested in teaching, if it's because uh, another thing that's really important is this is everything from preschool through high school. So you could say you're interested in high school or elementary school or all of the above, whatever it is, but you can see all the opportunities. So if you are a musician, a producer, a songwriter, an artist, a visual artist, a dancer, computer programming is even covered in this. If you're any form of artist and you're interested in teaching, you can go to schoolgig.us and see the current availabilities uh, and the jobs that are hiring. And we're adding more and more jobs uh, every day because it's just now it's the beginning of this. So it is a platform for free for you to find all of this. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the things when, when Aloe introduced us, we started talking, yeah. you know, what's the problem we're trying to solve? How does this help? Uh, traditionally, if a school's looking for a music teacher, we'll just stay with music. It could be, as you said, dance or animation, theater, lots of different things. Yeah. Uh, they'll call a school district and they'll say, you got any music teachers? No. Call back next year. You know, on to the next. Uh, and so schools hmm. don't do much recruiting before they're beyond their four walls. School districts don't do much recruiting outside the boundaries of their schools. And in today's day and age, whether it's a jam card or any of your other listeners who have a business of any sorts, you look for talent around the world. You go on Indeed, LinkedIn, you go into the ether, the world of the, the world of digital tools and say, let's find the best talent we can as jam card. Yeah. So we're connecting a drummer uh, and a keyboardist and they need a sound tech. Great. Jam card can help do that. Well, the mm. same thing for schools. So yep. we, we help schools connect with artists where they are, which is in the world. They're mm. not walking down the street in front of an elementary school with a paper yep. resume in hand looking for a job. Yep. And at the same time, we've tried to do with your help uh, and, and uh, Aloe and others is to say, okay, let's break down the component pieces by meeting people, not only where they are literally or, or digitally, uh, but in a sense of what is their knowledge base. So put it in language because there are 1,037 school districts in the state of California. Mr. Terrace Martin. Hey, 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 hey. How you doing there, bro? Part two, Elmo. Part two, let's get it. If you see me do a record with Kendrick Lamar and playing sax, it's because I need to put it, put that in the atmosphere yep. with Travis or YG or just me doing just 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 whatever. I'm just trying to make sure shit stay on track or yep. shit don't get off track too far. You know, uh, just I'm here on earth to always maintain a balance. Well, especially the work you did with Kendrick, most notably for free and everything. That was so, I mean, it was jazz driven, mm -hmm. right? It was musician yeah. driven. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, it was it was the blues, you right. know, and the blues. No, there's no other way to really uh, 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 paint that particular picture unless you have uh, other human beings that breathe mm. doing that. You know, you you right. can't you can't you you can't do the blues with Ableton. I mean, you could do something that sounds like it, right? But emotionally, to pull to pull the emotion and uh, spiritually to shift things inside of a human. That could only be done by other humans. Oh. Yeah, I, I, I've never toured with anybody I haven't produced a record for. Right. That was always my thing. I'm not leaving. I'm not going on the road. Right. Unless I have more stock into the brand. Right, right, right. You know, which is a, a being a songwriter. For you sure. Know, if I got stock in the brand, then what most people say, the weekly pays and things, yeah. I look at it completely different because instead of a renter, I'm now an owner of something. Right, 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 right. You know? I love that, man. You're not a uh, hired musician on stage. You're a feature because you're also producing it. And, and I always had the yeah. studio. On, I was the one that I was the only one that would bring the camera. Yep. And have a studio on the back of the bus. Nice. You know what I'm saying? So I was yeah. able to do a lot of records with Snoop for years on the back of the bus. Snoop, Kendrick, Dinner Party did did incredibly. Yeah. yeah. Our our plus our equals now I loved. Yeah. Um. Obviously now your solo stuff with drones. Uh. Even you with Leon. Yeah. With uh with Ricky Reed I know you and Ricky. Shout been out to Ricky Reed. Big, oh man. Yeah. He's He's the cat. What would you say is one of the greatest lessons you've learned from Herbie? Uh, he, he, he's taught me that you could 
you could find beauty within every problem. I love that. You could find beauty within every problem. One more time. You could find beauty within every problem. And, and what that means, just to get a light example, um, got to give these examples. Of course. A, a, a light example is if you, you know, you, you're going out for an audition for a gig. This is light. It's a bigger examples I could get, but this is for musicians. Uh, you know, you you get in the car, maybe MD in this gig, or maybe on this gig. You, you ain't got no rent. You ain't got none of this. You ain't you, you broke. Just you spent your last getting to this art or whatever the case is. You you have no money. You don't feel believed in, and you feel like something is tangible right there that could help you in your life. It's just right there, but then you don't get it. Someone that's done it all. It's kind of <laughs> even hard to start. I don't know where to start. I was like thinking, I'm like, what do I want to talk about? There's so many. There's so many things. There's there's all the credits from. His work with Dre, Snoop, Eminem, Alicia Keys, the early days with Stevie Wonder, the family ties with Stevie Wonder, the the clap stack, like one, my favorite symbol ever invented, <laughs> definitely one of the most Thanks. revolutionary symbols of, Thank you. I mean, since the hi-hat, <laughs> Trevor Lawrence Jr. So it, it's, it's, it's a weird thing with us, you know, drummers get a little bit typecast, you know what I'm saying? For sure. <laughs> And now, so and now you're you've been on all these albums as a producer, yeah. Done all these hits, and you're still drumming, and you'll even be drumming with Herbie Hancock. Yeah, well, you know what that that right there was probably one of the highlights. Got it. You know be. what I'm saying? Because I was done touring at that point. I was literally done. I had just built a studio and a whole complex out of Valencia, and 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 we were all. It was all just you know. My kids were young. I was in that mode, the five mile life. Yeah, you know, yeah. Dropped them off at school, go to the studio, and I swear to you, I got this call. I mean, email it was an email. I never forget. I went to the computer and I just saw a random email like availability. Herbie Hancock. What the hell? No way. Let me look and see. What I could. I, you know, I told my wife. I said, babe, I can't even. You know, so literally, bro. We moved there. Like everything got solidified, and we moved like October. And I was out like October 15th or something like that. I wasn't even in the house a month. And I was out. And my first run with him, which was only supposed to be, and by the way, it's because of Greg. Greg remind, referred me. So, because Vinny, you know, Vinny, you know, couldn't make it for whatever reason. Greg referred me. And um, it was two months in the winter in Europe. And that was my first run. And it was supposed to just be that. Then it ended up being ten years. See, and we got and we got such a small world because even then, two nights ago, bass was in the studio with Dre and Puff, right? And Snoop, come just, on, see, and he's from Beirut, man. That's dude. This get to L.A. It's unbelievable. Dreams bro. are coming true. Yeah, you could have easily seen me over there. So it's like it's just that would have been great. Well, next next time you will because he's worked with Snoop too because he works with Scott, uh, Scott Storch too. Oh yeah, well still, yeah yeah. I, yeah, mean, I know you. Yeah, that's another you know whole. Period. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like Scott working with him in Miami on like Brooke Hogan and, you know, that whole thing. And, you know, we met doing SNL like when he did Still Dre. You know, yeah. it's just a it's a small circle, man. And you know what? It just pays to be cool with everybody. Yeah. Everything's not going to go your way every time. And you could you could pack up and go home or you could just stay for the great times. You know what I'm saying? And I choose to stay for the great times and keep the relationships. So. That's just what it is, man. I, I, you know, I've never consciously tried to do anybody dirty. I've never been sued and never had to sue anyone. Amazing. That's that's my goal. That's yeah. success to me. Go. Let's go.